On this episode of the Utilitarian Podcast, I talk with Milan Surkovic. Milan is an astrophysicist at the Astronomical Observatory of Belgrade and a researcher at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. We talk about an effective altruist framework for thinking about aliens, as well as astrobiology in general. We also talk about the generalizability of physics and evolution, the Drake equation and the Fermi paradox, civilizations at different Kardashev levels, the current search for extraterrestrial life, the sociology of alien civilizations, the risk of spreading suffering in the universe, and the more near-term search for microbial life on Mars and on Jupiter's moon Europa. Milan, welcome to the Utilitarian Podcast. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Great. Uh, I want to talk about aliens and uh, intelligent (laughs) civilizations. Um, But I want to I want to initially just clear up that when I say aliens, I'm not talking about uh, Area 51 or who created the pyramid, the pyramids or uh, UFOs on American farmland or (laughs) anything like that. (laughs) So just let's get that kind of settled before we we go any further. Sure, no problem. Uh, although one uh, should actually mention some of these uh, cultural representations because they actually do play some role even in uh, high level things like you know fundraising and uh, you know and the resistance uh, many people feel uh, in seriously funding for instance seti and astrobiological efforts okay yeah yeah so do you have any idea of how how is astrobiology impacted by 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 these things is it is it disreputable to talk about aliens in general uh, no it's not really uh, you know i mean okay uh, now uh, there have been several phases, and there is a rather complicated history, uh, which is uh, which starts essentially very early in the modern age. And there is a uh, there is excellent book by my professor Michael Crow uh, about the ideas on extraterrestrial life and intelligence in. Uh, uh, since the time of enlightenment, basically since 18th century, so actually there was a there was a period uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, when completely reputable, very eminent scientists, people like uh, Lord Kelvin, like uh, Swan Theorenius, uh, many others, actually assumed as almost a given that, for instance, Mars is inhabited by advanced uh, civilization. And it wasn't uh, actually that crazy at all. I mean, it wasn't uh, really even laughable because it was based essentially on our best uh, theory about the formation of planets in our solar system, which actually was a version of the old uh, Kant-Laplace idea that uh, essentially this hot uh, nebula proto proto-solar and proto-planetary nebula uh, was 
essentially uh, rotating and uh, condensing uh, into planets uh, from from the outer parts inward, so that uh, essentially the planets which are most di distant from the Sun condense first, and that would mean that Mars is older than our Earth uh, and Earth is older than Venus, for instance, and uh, people simply applied uh, like the best available evolutionary reasoning to argue that if it is indeed so, then and Earth is nowadays inhabited by uh, intelligent at least in in some respects uh, <laughs> beings and uh, uh, that that would mean that the evolution on mars had uh, i don't know like millions of years more to evolve even superior uh, more intelligent more advanced beings so actually the the science behind for instance uh, uh, herbert george wells's war of the worlds uh, was perfect for that time that's very interesting. So there's been changes in, in the perception of, of researching astrobiology and aliens over time. Um, I, I want to tell you why, why I'm interested in, in this question, and I want to get your reaction to it. Um, my, my basic interest comes from an effective altruist or utilitarian position. So sure. I, want to know, I want to know if, if there's something that we can do uh, to help aliens or whether we are in some way threatened by them or whether they can help us um, or harm humanity in some way. So what I, you know, you, you are familiar with the notion of the expansion of the moral circle, uh, which is, which is the idea that um, just for, for the, for our listeners, it's the idea that over time, uh, the people or the, the creatures that we care about have expanded to include uh, more and more uh, creatures. So and now it includes all humans and we're approaching a time in which we include all animals. And I see, uh, construed in a specific way, I see aliens as the final expansion of the moral circle. Actually, um, actually, this is a extremely interesting idea, and it is tightly connected to several important strands of thought, so to speak, uh, in uh, contemporary science, but to also in the domain of philosophy, especially philosophy of biology. Uh, that is uh, uh, th that is uh, uh, very relevant from several. Uh, different points of view, and I do think that uh, it uh, it actually uh, is related to not only to that part or sector of uh, astrobiology which deals explicitly with uh, the search for intelligent life elsewhere, but also it is uh, very tightly connected to the problem we have in not only in astrobiology but in. Uh, life sciences in general, uh, which is uh, the lack of uh, universally accepted definition of life, or uh, or even the lack of uh, consensus about uh, what uh, exact features should we use uh, in all our searches for life elsewhere. There are definitely problems here, but yeah. Um... Another approach we can take here is to take the, the, the classic effective altruist framework, which we use for selecting uh, the area to, to which we can focus our, our efforts. And there are three classic criteria, importance, tractability, and neglectedness. So I, I would like to get your reaction to how I rate 
uh, a concern about alien civilizations on, on these criteria. Okay. Um, so if we if we look at the importance of of aliens, we're we're talking about possibly astronomical amounts of value. If we say that our universe is teeming with with civilizations that we could either help or their their welfare or lives could be improved, uh, and and possibly no no value at all if if we are the only uh, we're the only conscious beings in the universe. So that's that's the that's that's the importance part. Uh, okay, I, I I mean I I agree with the part of it, although I wouldn't really. Um formulated in in the way that uh, uh, entails the existence of uh, many uh, civilizations elsewhere. I think that's part of a, I mean, that is a part of a wider problem, which uh, basically, uh, I guess, we'll have, uh, we'll have enough opportunities to, to tackle later on. Uh, but the, the thing uh, which I would like to emphasize right now is that uh, I think that insistence on a number, uh, including the number of, uh, for instance, SETI targets in practical searches, uh, was very much misleading in the course of history of our thinking and our practical efforts uh, in, in that direction. Uh, I guess that there are some sort uh, a kind of um, qualitative assessment, I would say, uh, which may or may not translate into a quantitative, uh, because, for instance, uh, I don't know, okay, we'll come to that later, but uh, in uh, fans and uh, adepts of the Drake equation always uh, try to calculate the number n, the, the number of uh, uh, other civilizations or other potential targets of our SETI efforts. Uh, but that number to me is a kind of a red herring because uh, I don't really see a priori reason why, I don't know, like, 2000, uh, uh, 2000 civilizations which are similar to present uh, day humanity or maybe near future humanity, uh, they would uh, not create uh, either detectable signals or values in the ethical sense uh, as uh, one advanced civilization of i don't know kardashev types 3 or or something or something else very advanced and much older than the present day humanity this is all interesting but i, I we will come back to both the drake equation and the kardashev scales sure, later sure, on sure um, I, I just want to get into the two other criteria which is tractability so how easy is it to do something about it and there, I my estimation is that it's almost impossible to do something. It's almost completely intractable today. And this also ties into the last criteria, which is neglectedness. Um, caring about alien welfare is almost completely neglected today. So that is my assessment of, of the situation with regards to the ethics of aliens. Oh, that's the, 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 the okay. The last one is uh, uncontroversial, <laughs> I'd say. I mean, that's that's certainly so. Uh, on the other hand, one could uh, think about uh, reasons uh, why we would expect uh, some. Uh, to, to see some influence in, in, in the opposite direction. I mean, even some pioneers of, uh, uh, of uh, SETI projects like uh, Josef Shklovsky or 
Carl Sagan uh, actually argued that uh, even the mere discovery of an advanced uh, uh, galactic uh, society uh, would do immense uh, moral good to humanity by just showing that we can, uh, in a sense, we can survive and thrive uh, in our shared cosmic environment and uh, uh, we can uh, be reasonably hopeful to overcome uh, these uh, growing pains, so to speak, uh, which uh, bother us right now, like things like a threat of uh, nuclear, global, global nuclear winter or uh, climate change or other problems we are, de- we are dealing right now and which uh, may or may not uh, overwhelm us. So it would be almost an inspiring thing to discover that we can overcome global catastrophic ri- risk and become technically mature and, and stable as a civilization exactly exactly i think that but, but i think that uh, we can also go a little bit further there in the same direction by arguing that uh, discovery of a uh, of a galactic civilization which is uh, very much likely to be older than uh, than ourselves and actually this was in the time uh, in the times of uh, first uh, like in the times of osm of the osma project and the first seti efforts it was mostly a kind of hand waving assumption nowadays with uh, progress, uh, real progress being done in numerical and theoretical astrobiology, uh, we can even uh, calculate a rough distribution of uh, the rate of formation of, uh, for instance, uh, habitable planets. So we actually uh, can be fairly certain that uh, other potential targets, potential biospheres, and of course, uh, potential uh, no spheres or technospheres or however you wish to call uh, that which is uh, uh, essentially uh, like uh, some embedding in which uh, intelligent beings uh, have evolved elsewhere um, those uh, uh, those targets uh, are uh, 99.99 etc likelier to be much older than ourselves. And um, the median age is significant. Median age, for instance, of the um, of any Earth-like planets uh, in the Milky Way is uh, as calculated by first by Charles Slimeweaver in 2001 and later refined by other uh, astrobiologists. Uh, it is about 1.8, if I remember correctly, billion years uh, greater than the age of Earth. So, in a sense, uh, we expect uh, by far most uh, inhabited planets to be inhabited for much longer time than, than, than our planet. Let's talk about how we, we come to know these things that you've just told us. So, let's talk about astrobiology as a field. Can you introduce what is astrobiology? Uh, okay, astrobiology is a kind of uh, newfangled name for uh, something which is not really that new, uh, but nowadays uh, uh, can be integrated in, in, into a more uh, 
synthetic framework. Uh, people usually say that uh, astrobiology is a, a multidisciplinary field which uh, gathers uh, together people from uh, both astronomical sciences and uh, life sciences uh, in order to, as the famous NASA roadmap suggested, to answer three canonical or big questions. Uh, uh, first of all is, uh, of course, uh, how does the, uh, life emerge and evolve in its widest cosmic environment? The second is, uh, is there life elsewhere beyond Earth? And the third one is, what is uh, the future of uh, life uh, and intelligence in, again, in the widest possible cosmic context? Uh, now, people, uh, those three canonical questions are, in my view, rather useful way of introducing uh, the complexities of practical uh, astrobiological research, because you see from their very uh, from from their very formulations that uh, you are dealing with something uh, where you need input from. Uh, both uh, astronomical sciences, meaning uh, astrophysics and planetary science and planetary uh, atmospheric sciences, uh, planetary geology, etc., and the life sciences, especially biochemistry and evolutionary theory, and as well uh, as those special sciences, you need uh, some philosophical input as well because we are uh, we are talking about generalization of concepts which are basically empirical concepts of say life and intelligence which emerged in the course of history of human science and we cannot really be sure how universally applicable they are uh, in some other very strange, very different uh, context. So a large part of uh, the of, of any research in astrobiology actually amounts to our uh, struggle to overcome our anthropocentric biases and prejudices. When we extrapolate from from the physics and the biology that we've discovered here on Earth. Um, is it is it easier to extrapolate physics than biology would you say well it certainly is because after all we are uh, we can be reasonably certain and uh, even when we are not uh, it in general uh, has been a, a very fruitful practice to extrapolate from uh, physical processes in our vicinity and by our vicinity i don't mean necessary on earth but for instance when we are discussing uh, evolution of stars and stellar systems uh, we are uh, drawing on both our observations in the vicinity of our solar system that is in the milky way and then we apply uh, what we have learned to other galaxies and in most cases it went uh, surprisingly well in a sense that uh, it uh, uh, in cosmology, there is a so-called cosmological principle which suggests that the universe will basically look the same uh, for any observer, no matter where 
he or she is located uh, in in space. So essentially, it turns out that uh, when we try to apply uh, our astrophysical understanding of systems uh, uh, obtained on the level of, say, the Milky Way, our galaxy, to other galaxies, we are very successful, to say at least, in that. On the other hand, the problem is that we still, as many people pointed out, uh, famously Karl Popper in his early 1970s criticism of evolutionary biology, uh, that we are still... Learning about uh, one single biosphere, which is uh, essentially since since Darwin onward, we are, we know that we are essentially descended from what is nowadays often called the Luca or last universal common ancestor. Uh, so uh, this is just one instance of uh, general evolutionary process. So we are not, we cannot really be certain uh, that uh, our experience and our local information is truly universal. Maybe we are freaks of nature in that, uh, in, uh, in, the, in the domain of biology. We know since Copernicus onward that we are not freaks under quotation marks uh, as far as uh, physics is and astronomy uh, is concerned. Uh, but uh, whether that Copernican assumption is valid for life sciences, it still remains to be seen. Uh, I am personally much optimistic in that regard, and I don't think that we have enough reason to abandon uh, Copernicanism as a sort of a guiding principle in life sciences as well. But there are many people who disagree. One should be quite clear about that. So we, we can distinguish between our having evolved in a specific contingent way. So humans having evolved to become something that's that's special to us. And then the, the underlying uh, evolutionary laws. So wouldn't you expect evolution to hold on, uh, on other planets such that, that aliens will have evolved, although in, in possibly a very different direction than us? Uh, that is really, that is a sort of a contentious issue, extremely contentious issue. Uh, there was a famous uh, paper, uh, the first guy who pointed out and uh, in a sense uh, set the stage for current debates uh, was George Gaylord Simpson, who uh, distinguished evolution and paleontologist uh, who actually published uh, in early 1960s, he published a very influential uh, paper uh, which argued that essentially uh, the probability of anything uh, vaguely resembling us, now resembling us in what respect, that was something he a little bit swindled uh, around that uh, that issue, uh, so that is uh, something which is open to criticism. But as I say, uh, from the point of view of uh, uh, beings we could, in principle, communicate with, uh, Simpson argued that that probability is extremely low. Uh, so actually, we shouldn't really expect that to to occur, uh, and uh, we should be very uh, cautious so to speak, uh, uh, as uh, regarding a very optimistic uh, early estimates which followed uh, this uh, onset of uh, 
classical SETI efforts in uh, a very late 1950s with a paper by Coconi and Morrison in Nature and uh, with a, a project OSMA in 1960. And uh, this was a sort of a birth of modern day empirical search for for extraterrestrial intelligence so in that in those uh, the people who were involved in those searches uh, were wildly optimistic too optimistic actually uh, which uh, later led to a kind of backlash when all these early optimistic expectations did not come to fruition. So that was the reason why subsequently people went to the other extreme and uh, were in a, in a sense too pessimistic or too skeptical as far as uh, the scientific nature of, uh, of the search, of, of the very activity of our searching for extraterrestrial intelligence or for aliens, if you wish, uh, is concerned. So uh, Simpson argued that uh, contingency and uh, general opportunism of uh, evolution is something which uh, prevents us from uh, ever finding something which is close uh, enough in uh, this huge biological morpho space, space of all possible biological forms, so uh, so close actually that we would be able, for instance, to meaningfully communicate. Uh, so that was sort of a, a blueprint for all subsequent pessimistic or skeptical accounts, uh, including those which after... Uh, after the end of uh, last century and the millennium after the year 2000 became a kind of fashionable under the name of rare earth after one rather uh, well-known and uh, and well-sold and kind of a scientific bestseller book uh, rare earth by Ward, Peter Ward and Donald Brownlee, which was published in, in, in the year 2000, and which uh, essentially uh, expanded and popularized what was, what was basically Simpson's criticism from, from the early 1960s. But am I right that, that Simpson's criticism goes uh, or argues against the notion that life elsewhere uh, will resemble humans? Uh, not that not that life elsewhere will have evolved oh yes you are right but that is part of the swindle i mentioned i mentioned there uh he uh, yeah he actually argued that uh, uh simple similar to to the rare earth uh, uh, adherents these days that's uh, what they also say uh is that actually you can expect some simple life form like some microorganisms for instance to evolve everywhere or basically whenever you have uh, uh, convenient uh, physical and chemical preconditions for for life it will emerge rather quickly but the problem is that uh, actually it's not uh, just uh, abiogenesis the, the origin of life from non-living matter the problem is uh, what could be called no genesis or the emergence of uh, mind or intelligence or uh, self-awareness or i don't know tool making capacity or however you wish to call it actually and then the part of a swindle actually where some people uh, criticize simpson and those uh, 
a pessimist uh, uh, pessimist supporters of his uh, was that uh, essentially you don't really need to be that close in the morphological space in order to have uh, something which is uh, uh, intelligent or self-aware or capable of building uh, civilization and capable of, after all, being detected over interstellar distances. So actually, that was, that, that's, that's also connected to the issue which Simpson uh, explicitly used, and it is repeated uh, from time to time uh, in all subsequent uh, discussions, uh, which is the question, uh, if humans did not evolve uh, on Earth, uh, whether some other uh, species or some other taxon uh, would have evolved uh, intelligence and say, I don't know, constructed radio telescopes uh, to in, in order to, to, to search for other intelligent species in the universe. So uh, there are actually there are actually other species on Earth which are remote from us, in uh, the morphological sense, uh, but which show at least some promise to be able of evolving toward toward intelligence. Especially, you know, say, there are several marine species, not only marine mammals like dolphins and uh, and and uh, great whales, uh, but also you have some uh, cephalopods, like much uh, more distant. They are very. Uh, Point where our ancestry uh, diverged from that of uh, of, uh, of a cephalopod is uh, at very very early days, like 400 million years ago or something uh, similar. So actually, uh, and they are still very intelligent. Uh, and uh, there are there are all these uh, interesting examples of uh, like uh, giant squids being able to solve problems which are completely unsolvable uh, by any other you know, living species except for primates. For instance, only primates, only our nearest uh, phylogenetic relatives like chimpanzees will know uh, how to open a box in order to fetch uh, food from the box if opening requires some highly coordinated uh, but separate actions. And you know, a giant squid can do it and can learn it to do it to do a thing like that very quickly. And of course, it happens. It also helps that they are very dexterous. So, uh, so actually, uh, it is possible to. Uh, we cannot know, of course, because especially after humans have already created all this global civilization in which we nowadays live, uh, now the space for uh, possible further evolution of, uh, of other species on Earth is tightly constrained, and it is very questionable whether even if uh, humans do undertake important measures for conservation of at least part of uh, of natural habitats, uh, it is still very doubtful whether we can expect that uh, spontaneously without some human uplifting or some other some other um, uh, intervention uh, that they would have uh, uh, would have the same opportunities for independent evolution of say 
cognition or other necessary necessary properties. Uh, now, now I would like just to, uh, to, 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 to emphasize here that uh, lacking uh, sort of a universally accepted definitions, uh, I mean, I use here as I do, for instance, in, 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 in my book on the Fermi's Paradox, where I uh, have tried to justify that choice in more detail. Uh, I use the terms like uh, advanced cognition and intelligence and the consciousness and self-awareness as a sort of quasi-synonyms quasi or something which actually, although... I admit that there are some important important uh, um, uh, distinctions to be made, uh, but from the point of view of astrobiology, they are essentially uh, placeholders for for one single thing, which we can uh, we can we can conceptualize as so as advanced cognition, so to speak. And it's more interesting to you that we can find signs of. of- let's call it proto-intelligence in, in squids, for example, because they diverge from us so so far back in evolutionary history. That does that does that mean that you you would expect to uh, to have another uh, intelligent species evolve had had humanity not evolved uh, to to this level? Actually, yes, I do think that uh, that uh, I I do belong to this uh, optimist camp, if you wish to say that, which is anti anti Simpson camp, so to speak, uh, the, where people have argued. And some people in in uh, in uh, among evolutionary biologists as, as well that actually there is enough convergence as opposed uh, as partially opposed to contingency uh, that there are some uh, universal uh, adaptive characters uh, which actually are located at uh, global peaks in that fitness landscape which for instance. Dobzhansky uh, described very well in his books uh, and uh, subsequent uh, subsequent modern researchers uh, and popularizers like Richard Dawkins, for instance. Uh, there is this fitness landscape where actually a kind of random walk still uh, brings you uh, to these uh, uh, adaptive peaks, which are un- uh, most stable, uh, where, where you can expect to find most stable characters likely to evolve from several different directions in the same manner as you can climb a peak of, of a mountain from several, in principle, of course, from several directions. Although it uh, the same as in mountaineering, uh, it does not uh, the fact that you can, in principle, reach the peak from various directions. Of course, does not mean that all directions are equally easy or equally practical. So that's the same in evolution. I mean, you can have. Uh, some very important, almost universal features like vision, for instance, uh, but you can arrive uh, arrive at uh, having uh, functional vision from several different uh, directions, and so you can get uh, uh, eye, uh, which is similar to the eye of uh, uh, of uh, humans or other mammals, or you can have a co- uh, this uh, composite eye, which is similar to uh, eyes of insects. Uh, but uh, it is fairly uh, uncontroversial and uh, at least fairly reasonable uh, to expect that uh, uh, on any 
planet similar to Earth, which is illuminated by an average yellow or even red star, uh, like our sun or uh, other dwarf stars, uh, normal stars on uh, on the HR stellar diagram, stars of the, say, spectral class G as the sun or spectral class K, perhaps as our nearest neighbor Alpha Centauri is, or uh, some other uh, very, very normal stars which are constitute the majority of population of our galaxy and other galaxies as well. Uh, so the, these stars emit uh, so many visible optical photons that it is highly advantageous for any living being evolving in its vicinity uh, to have vision because it is a way of transmitting uh, or getting a large amount of information which is important for surviving and uh, reproducing and uh, leaving uh, its genetic information to uh, subsequent generations. So in a sense, uh, whether these universal adaptive peaks are numerous enough and whether they actually encompass what we can call advanced cognition, that is the real sort of a contentious issue. Uh, and I think together with some other, let me mention, for instance, Gerard Vermey, uh, distinguished uh, modern evolutionary biologist who actually wrote a lot about uh, importance of convergence in evolution, uh, that actually there are universal basic laws of physics and, of course, some emergent, uh, uh, not really laws, but, say, rules or regularities uh, which could be labeled as regularities of economics, uh, lead basically in the same direction and create uh, uh, the background uh, against which uh, one could expect uh, some of these uh, universally adaptive features to evolve no matter where in the universe. Let's talk about how we how we settle debates in astrobiology. So how do we gather data? How is it possible for us to know something about the composition of other planets uh, from, from just this uh, electromagnetic radiation that, that we can detect? Well, okay. How, how do we extract uh, information? Okay, uh, for one, one, one way of uh, going about uh, is to basically extend uh, the well-known methodologies of astronomy and astrophysics just to newly discovered uh, extrasolar planets. Uh, so in the same manner, basically, in which in 19th century we were first able to uh, determine chemical composition of uh, solar atmosphere at first, and then people uh, apply the same method of spectral analysis to other stars, and so they actually managed to establish the, uh, rather conclusively and rather early that there is some sort of almost uh, universal composition of matter, which is which uh, which is variable, of course, but it does not vary so much as people would expect. Uh, so, actually, we know that, for instance, uh, you know, stars uh, at this epoch, the present epoch in the universe, are basically 98 point, uh, 
6% hydrogen and helium and there are different chemical elements in the in the remainder which are essentially those elements which are relevant for both formation of Earth-like planets and for life which are mostly carbon and oxygen and uh, uh, also some iron and sulfur and some other elements which are common on Earth. Uh, the thing uh, is that uh, nowadays we can uh, recently, that is a rather new development in the last two decades or so, uh, we can apply spectral analysis to atmospheres of some conveniently located extrasolar planets, so we can actually uh, get an absorption spectrum of uh, uh, some of these planets which often transit across the disk of their parent star, uh, and that was done in several cases. Uh, essentially, that's just the question of sensitivity and, you know, just like... Uh, being diligent enough to, to to get enough spectra, so essentially that's uh, and of course having sufficient telescope time, which can be expensive and difficult to obtain. Uh, so uh, so there is a uh, uh, there that it's it's not really that controversial uh, since those planets which have been. Uh, whose atmospheres have been analyzed uh, in this manner so far uh, have been mostly gas giants. Uh, so there were no surprises there. I mean, we, we learned that their atmospheres are composed of, uh, you know, like the same thing as uh, Jupiter's atmosphere is in our solar system, mainly ammonia, methane, uh, helium, and some other gases which are common in, in, in gas giants. Uh, we expect that method to be applicable to smaller Earth-like planets in the very near future. Now, this is uh, where, where we are, uh, here we, we are talking about years, really, not decades, but, but years, uh, because there is a great interest of the astronomical community in achieving that goal, namely to be able to, to do a spect spectral analysis of an atmosphere of an Earth-like small rocky planet, um, uh, which revolves around another star. Uh, so uh, that is uh, where things can potentially become immediately very interesting from the astrobiological point of view, because, for instance, if we were to uh, discover that there is a small planet with atmosphere with uh, uh, several dozens dozens uh, of, of, of percent of free oxygen, like in Earth's atmosphere, then uh, we would uh, be rather immediately justified in suspecting that uh, that uh, uh, we are looking at an uh, at a planet which is inhabited by at least something resembling plant life on earth uh, because free oxygen is extremely rare in uh, the universe uh, um, as far as uh, completely natural abiotic that means non-living processes are involved. 
because it's simply chemically very aggressive. I mean, it tends to to to, to <laughs> it tends to oxidize everything. <laughs> so mm-hmm. oxidation of everything is basically basically you have uh, oxygen not in free state but bound in some either rocks or some uh, in some, some other some gaseous compounds like water or uh, like like other other oxides. Uh, and free oxygen is extremely rare. Free oxygen exists in the Earth's atmosphere exclusively because the Earth is inhabited by uh, photosynthetic plants, and it wasn't always so. Uh, basically, the oxygen on Earth was created in what is sometimes called the Great Oxygen Catastrophe or Great Oxygen Event, uh, which occurred basically about 2.5 or 2.7 billion years ago, uh, where uh, before that there uh, there was very little oxygen in Earth's atmosphere, uh, and there was much methane in atmosphere so the, uh, the, the this this balance uh, shifted completely from uh, methanogens which were the first organisms which produced methane to photosynthetic organisms like uh, like uh, blue green algae and uh, photosynthetic plants uh, uh, later uh, who actually create oxygen and maintain oxygen in uh, uh, large concentrations which we have uh, which is uh, a sort of a precondition for uh, evolving complex terrestrial life now it is of course possible that complex life can emerge uh, uh, in anaerobic or oxygen less uh, environment. This is very interesting uh, stuff, very interesting hypothesis. There are people, uh, uh, very distinguished biochemists with interest in astrobiology, like Stephen Banner, for instance, and some other, uh, who are uh, trying to resolve the question, including doing some um, laboratory experiments, uh, whether you can have a, a kind of uh, a complex biochemistry uh, without oxygen, based on uh, some other reactions other than oxygenation, which is a basic of uh, metabolism in, in, in animals. So whether, of course, those kind of experiments in, uh, in a lab are of limited uh, value in this particular context, because the problem is that they are mostly, most of all, uh, the problem is that they are time limited. Of course, uh, nature has had millions and billions of years uh, in order to do kind of natural experiments and to to try different possibilities and different uh, pains of chemical reactions. Uh, we cannot really, we don't have that luxury in our laboratories uh, because, you know, you cannot really ask for... For a grant to to fund an experiment which requires millions of years. So I want to introduce, or I want to have you introduce two classic theoretical concepts: the Drake equation and the Fermi paradox. This is, I take this to be kind of the starting point for for the conversation about extraterrestrial civilizations. Uh, okay. Uh, now, that's a tall order, uh, in a sense. Listen, uh, okay, uh, as far as Drake's equation, uh, equation goes, uh, there is uh, there are several uh, rather 
clear and intuitively acceptable uh, ways to approach it. Uh, after all, there is a famous there is a famous problem for you know like estimating orders of magnitude, which was beloved by Enrico Fermi himself. I mean, which is the 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 eponymous with 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 Fermi's paradox. Uh, uh, Fermi uh, liked to ask his students uh, questions like uh, how many piano tuners there are in the city of Chicago, for instance, because he taught for, for a time at the University of Chicago. So actually, it is a very difficult question, uh, of course, to answer if you wish a precise answer, whether there is like, I don't know, 46 piano tuners in Chicago or maybe 128 or something like this. But he said, okay, it's not important to know the exact number. It's important to get uh, uh, roughly to an order of magnitude estimate by thinking of issues such as how many families there are in Chicago, uh, how many, how a big fraction of those families uh, are likely to possess a piano, how often do you need a, a tuning uh, if you if you if you possess a piano how often do you need to tune it and uh, on the basis of that uh, he uh, was able to in several steps to estimate uh, within again an order of magnitude or half an order of magnitude if you are especially good guesser uh, within a factor of two or three, uh, so uh, to to be able to determine uh, that number, say piano tuners in Chicago or some other uh, objects uh, with which you need not to be in some kind of direct empirical relation with. So, in that same uh, guesstimate, within that same guesstimate procedure, uh, you can try to estimate how many potential targets of our search for extraterrestrial intelligence or SETI uh, projects there are, for instance, in the Milky Way. So you start with a number of stars and then you, you ask questions, okay, how likely is uh, an, an average star to have uh, habitable planets and how likely is a habitable planet to be actually inhabited by a simple life forms and blah, blah, blah. And you end up with some number N. So basically Drake equation is uh, are very easy to see and you have uh, you, there are several versions depending on what parameters exactly you take into account there are some people who separate things like you know the uh, abiogenesis as the origin of life from non-living matter and then uh, complex life as a kind of uh, thing which happened on earth in the Cambrian explosion or somewhere around it uh, in the last uh, um, one-seventh or one-sixth of uh, the history of life on Earth uh, were complex uh, multicellular metazoa animal, basically animal uh, life forms uh, um, originated. So actually you can have, you can... Uh, fiddle around with uh, with uh, uh, sort of uh, what exact choice of parameters will you take, but in principle uh, it is the same. You have kind of uh, uh, on one uh, 
say on the left hand side of the equation you have this famous number n which should represent the number of uh, potential uh, of other civilizations in the galaxy or potential SETI targets. Uh, and on the other hand, you have a bunch of parameters which belong to either astronomy in the sense of, uh, say, star formation ratio or a number of planets per star or something like this. And actually, uh, subsequently, life sciences or biology which which are dealing with probabilities of evolving life or probabilities of intelligent life there is one controversial parameter on the right hand side of any form of the equation which is especially controversial which is usually denoted by a capital letter l uh, you can exactly see why it is L because it should it should uh, stand for lifetime of uh, civilization or lifetime of uh, uh, civilization in that particular stage in which it could be at least potentially detected by our efforts. Now why is that controversial? Because obviously uh, that is uh, parameter which is neither astronomical nor biological in sensu stricto as it is something which uh, deals with uh, what could one could call sociology or social science or 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 or, or even historical science as applied to uh, other civilizations so obviously it is something rather vague, nebulous, or even fantastic to think about. Uh, so do you find the Drake equation valuable then, if it, if it includes this vague, uh, uh, this vague uh, number in it? Listen, uh, everything, you know, like, like this uh, famous uh, book from the Bible, this Ecclesiastes, uh, everything has its time. So actually, I, I do think Drake equation was historically valuable. It played the important role in uh, uh, legitimizing first SETI efforts. Uh, it was it is useful in teaching about things. Uh, it is, but it is essentially as uh, as that Fermi's question about the number of piano tuners. I mean, it is a rule of thumb. So it is something which is vague. Uh, from the very start. I mean, so you cannot really expect uh, it to give a kind of precise answers. So it is rather amusing or strange or bizarre or even unfortunate uh, to see people deriving all kinds of allegedly precise predictions for n for this for the number of, of civilizations on the basis of Drake equation no you cannot do that so it is not really intended and uh, Frank Drake himself never actually tried this is a kind of misuse which often people are doing and there are often people not really scientists by people say like science popularizers or people in in the media uh, which really think you can just plug some numbers and then you get something and you say oh this is my prediction that n is equal to 1545 for instance 
so that's that's that makes no sense. Essentially, what uh, because obviously uh, when you uh, when you think about why uh, why that makes no sense, you you see that uh, some of the parameters which are on the right hand side are simply poorly constrained, and you can have uncertainties uh, of several orders of magnitude in those parameters. So actually, you know, there is this uh, famous saying in computer science, garbage in, garbage out. If you, uh, if you put something uh, very poorly constrained or something very uncertain in, whatever you obtained must be also uncertain. So there is no way to obtain any kind of precision. And uh, when you encounter, and unfortunately, uh, you can encounter many instances of uh, this false precision in the literature, uh, then it actually doesn't do any good. Uh, and doesn't, Does it, it make any sense to talk about the Fermi, Fermi paradox then? Because the Fermi paradox is supposed to arise when we compare this this number n uh, uh, of, of, of civilizations to what we actually observe, <laughs> which, which is that we have not, not observed anything yet. Uh, that, uh, that may look so, but I'm actually rather vehemently against this uh, that approach to Fermi paradox, uh, for reasons as I'll try to explain. Uh, but let me, let me just first, before I go into that, uh, let me just first uh, emphasize one other thing. Uh, one, uh, it is as all rules of thumb. It is uh, Drake's equation is a sort of a starting place, but starting place for what exact? Namely, starting place for building a more elaborate astrobiological theory, if you wish, or theory or astrobiological model, or if you wish to be really precise, a family of models which would be based on much better insight and lo and behold uh, there are some better much better insights into some of uh, not all but some parameters which appear uh, in uh, Drake's equation if you analyze it from a sort of mathematical point of view you can see that essentially what appears uh, on the right hand side in the Drake equation are essentially some mean values or some averages taken over relevant distributions. Now, in the times of uh, the OSMA project and Frank Drake and Shklovsky and Sagan and uh, those early times, there were simply no way how could we even hope to even approximately determine uh, how do those underlying distributions look like. Nowadays, it's not that we are not in that state of ignorance anymore. There are important milestones, important advances which have been made. One of which, which is one of which, was exactly what I mentioned, what uh, Charles Lineweaver did in 2001, because he actually he didn't just wave his hand and said, "Oh, I believe that uh, most Earth-like planets are older than than uh, than our our Earth actually is." Uh, no, on the contrary, he actually uh, constructed a theoretical distribution of the ages of of all of the entire uh, set of galactic planets which are Earth-like, and uh, he said, "Okay, now we just need to 
take an integral or average over some particular interval in order to see what's the average age of a, uh, of, of, a, of, an pot, of an Earth-like planet, which is a potential habitat. So, uh, essentially, nowadays we have much deeper theoretical insight into at least some of the of the parameters of the Drake equation, or more precisely, into uh, the origin, into the underlying distribution which underlies some of the parameters which appear uh, in the Drake equations as simple uh, scalar average values. So uh, actually, we should try to apply that knowledge and to apply our newly acquired theoretical sophistication to that problem. That's one thing which many people are actually working uh, uh, on as we speak. That is probably, the, um, if not the most important, then one of the most important issues in theoretical astrobiology. And that, that's, that's the one thing. And of course, if one claims to understand a better our uh, instrumentation capacities and uh, moreover not really our present day instrumentation capacities but say our instrumentation capacities which are not some science fictional Star Trek ones but something which will be accessible uh, in the next few decades or maybe in the course of the next century or so. Uh, so uh, that is important from the very point of view of, uh, say, the size uh, of, uh, of our galaxy, because we actually uh, expect, we don't see, due to finite velocity of light, we don't see other astronomical sources outside the solar system as they are now. Uh, we are looking at them as they are like uh, in case of Alpha Centauri, for instance, as they were 4.3 years ago, and in the case of some farther stars, as they are like dozens uh, uh, years ago, or maybe centuries, or maybe at most a couple of thousand years ago, because that's the size of the galaxy. Size of a galaxy is measured in, say, kiloparsecs or thousands of light years, uh, maybe a couple of dozens of thousands of light years, but that's, uh, that's basically it. So uh, this, is, this interval is, uh, time interval is still rather small by astronomical standards, so we can, in a sense, approximate that we are seeing uh, the entire galaxy almost as it is now, not exactly, but almost, because this uh, time delay is not very big. Uh, it becomes very big when you go beyond our galaxy. When we go, when you go to look at other external galaxies, uh, then it becomes uh, uh, this look back time becomes much bigger. So that in uh, that include in that case you have some more complications. Uh, but for instance, when you when we limit ourselves to our galaxy, which is huge enough anyway, uh, so uh, we can say. Okay, we wish to uh, see what we can detect within a, within a sphere of, say, like uh, 10 light years radius around the sun or 50 light years or 100 light years or something like this. Uh, and gradually we are uh, 
getting more and more information in a sense that we are like uh, combing through this uh, cosmic haystack, so to speak. We are searching for a needle in, in a haystack, proverbial one, uh, but we are gradually, uh, gradually seeing better. And of course, I mean, this haystack is highly uneven. I mean, it is very, uh, it's not homogeneous. I mean, then we, we know more about some chunks uh, of it than about the others, but gradually it is improving. And uh, I'm rather happy to, to report that in the last about 10 years, say something uh, since roughly like 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, there has been a kind of uh, resurgence of interest in in SETI projects in general, in uh, uh, detection and detectability of uh, of uh, potential other uh, other biospheres, which is sometimes nowadays called uh, searching for biosignatures, and uh, uh, in uh, looking for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is nowadays often called search for technosignatures. So there is a sort of uh, parallel uh, advance uh, and parallel increase of interest in searching for both biosignatures and for technosignatures, which I find quite encouraging, actually. And I find this is something uh, something very good, which, uh, which, is, which is happening right now. Should I understand this as saying that uh, we might have prematurely invented this Fermi paradox such that we, we just haven't explored enough uh, before we, we began exactly. talking about paradoxes. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. That is exactly one. Uh, that is exactly one of the conclusions one uh, one could uh, one should reach about that. Uh, and there are some there are some others. I actually prefer to look at Fermi's paradox as a kind of uh, that is uh, <laughs> that's something which um, which is. Essentially, a philosophical problem. Essentially, a philosophical paradox uh, that in which uh, we uh, simply do not. Uh, there is a paradox of absence. We rather expect some things uh, to be around. In, as philosophers like to put it, in fullness of space and time, you expect to have some things around, and uh, empirically, you don't see them. So why is that? What is the? Where is the catch? Where? where what is uh, something which uh, which uh, which we are missing? Uh, why the dog didn't bark in uh, Sherlock Holmes or uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's famous story? So uh, the thing is that uh, I think that we we may get the best perspective on Fermi's paradox, but by analyzing. Uh, what exactly comes into it? So, what is uh, uh, what uh, uh, what parts of our uh, scientific methodology and our philosophical assumptions, which usually go unstated, very implicit, very tacit, uh, we are we have actually smuggled in it. Uh, which cause a kind of uh, of uh, unexpected or even paradoxical consequence. So, uh, and what do we smuggle in? Uh, oh, many things actually. Uh, one of the okay, one interesting thing which we which is obvious, which is quite obvious, uh, is is uh, already mentioned Copernicanism. 
So we expect actually, we say, okay, Copernicus showed and Galileo and those other things showed that we are not in the center of the universe. In one sense, if we were in the center of the universe, then the whole uh, stuff would be much easier. And so actually, which was argued by their, by their opponents that actually uh, it, is, uh, it is much plausible to live in a geocentric universe, which is small, instead of a heliocentric universe in which uh, uh, stars are actually distant suns, which is huge, and that makes so much space, and that is so much empty, basically, essentially, mostly empty space, which is uh, uh, hard to imagine why the creator uh, deity would uh, create such a huge amount of empty space. Uh, that was one of the arguments of uh, anti-Copernicans in, 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 in those early, early days in the Renaissance. Uh, now, uh, there is some kind of a similar reasoning, uh, often, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, in order to, to have a paradoxical conclusion in Fermi's paradox, you have to assume, actually, that uh, Earth is just uh, an average habitable planet. Maybe the Earth is actually unique by some property which we are not aware of, or at least we haven't identified it as unique. This is the rare Earth hypothesis. Exactly. So that is the whole... Uh, I, I mean, okay, they are calling it rare Earth hypothesis indeed, and I actually also use it. I'm, I'm using the same idiom there, but this is not really a single hypothesis. This is a sort of a wild, uh, very wide family of hypotheses uh, in which each particular hypothesis would actually identify a particular property of the Earth uh, which is uh, rare or, or even unique. So actually you can say, oh, there is a sort of a unique uh, large satellite like our moon, which is important for stabilize, stabilizing the, uh, the rotational axis of Earth. So we have a kind of stable climate, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and the other guys would say, oh, no, there is a, the, the, the other, th other things are very rare, namely to have a planet like Jupiter at exactly the right place, so it shields us from uh, very destructive cometary impacts from our from outer solar system. So there are many particular properties of uh, real uh, observed Earth, uh, which could, in principle, be very rare or unique. Now, I don't really put much stock in, in, in that personally, because I think that this is a sort of a, uh, this is a sort of a, a posteri posteriori reduction of probabilities, which is, uh, uh, which if, 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 it were located in any other part of science, I mean, it would be sort of rejected as rather ridiculous. There is an excellent essay by a great Polish science fiction writer Stanislav Lem, who actually was one of uh, one of uh, the thinkers who thought most deeply about about this. Uh, in that essay, he actually, the, the guy who is a narrator, he actually remembers uh, uh, how strange and unusual uh, 
coincidences were instrumental in his mother meeting his father and then he goes further back in time and say oh but my grandmother from one from a mother's side uh, she met my grandfather uh, during uh, world war she worked as a medic and blah 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 so there is so how improbable is all that and so he actually finds more and more reasons to believe that his own existence actually is highly improbable so although we already know that you know that he exists so his probability of his existence is one uh, but you can a posteriori reduce the probability of some occurrence by specifying more and more precise requirement for exactly that thing to occur. So that is uh, what I call the over-specification, which is essentially a kind of er informal error committed uh, by many people uh, in this domain, because actually it is highly doubtful whether you need to have so precisely so precisely narrow range of parameters in order to produce similar outcomes you're pretty positive about the prospects of of are detecting an uh, an extraterrestrial civilization can can i get you to to put some probabilities <laughs> here? no no no, no. Okay. i don't think so now, uh, listen uh, the thing is that uh, okay the problem is uh, i i i explain why the problem is that i think that people have historically been uh, rather irresponsible about exact numbers or even probabilities uh, so so uh, people actually that is and that did uh, enough damage actually one of the i I, uh, uh, I think the modern history in a modern in a sense uh, since say 1950, for instance, or something like that. Uh, the modern history of our search for life elsewhere has not yet been written in a kind of, uh, you know, like uh, synthetic, like uh, uh, both wide and deep form. Uh, and uh, I guess one day, one nice day when it is finally written, then people uh, will realize that's my hypothesis and my speculation uh, that actually uh, both uh, you know huge uh, optimism and huge pessimism and uh, especially false precision uh, given in many cases were actually harmful to the enterprise itself uh, and that people actually there was a uh, there was first in the in the 50s and 60s there was a, this great enthusiasm and there was this all sorts of like uh, wonderful ideas about galactic clubs uh, which is uh, just waiting for us to join and uh, which and you know like a thousand people obtained uh, as a value of m in the Drake equation people obtained like like numbers like 10,000 or like 100,000 which is obviously ridiculous from our present point of view we know that whatever correct value 
I mean, I don't doubt that there is some sort of correct, correct value, but it is really kind of uh, impossible to establish by just plugging numbers in, in the Drake equation because those numbers are bound to be guesstimates. I mean, they are not really, we cannot really hope to, to determine them empirically, at least not for decades and probably centuries to come. Uh, so actually, I am an optimist, but on a long time scale. I mean, not really on time scale of uh, like years. Maybe, maybe not within our lifetimes. But, but probably, uh, probably in the course, if we are, if the advancement of uh, astronomical instruments above everything else is some sort of a gauge, then I guess uh, in, in about uh, in the course of the next hundred years or next century, uh, we'll have a really. Uh, highly sensitive detectors, which will which will enable us to really scan surfaces of extrasolar planets in sufficient uh, detail to really understand whether they are inhabited or not, or, and if they are inhabited by some form of life, whether that form of life is complex enough to create artifacts or or techno signatures in a general sense or not. So actually, this is uh, something which uh, which ultimately will have to be determined by observations and on empirical grounds, like everything else in science. I do think, uh, however, that there are healthier and less healthy um, theoretical and philosophical background, so to speak, uh, which, uh, which is more or less conducive to that kind of observations or more precisely to, you know, like gathering resources and fundraising for such kind of observations. So if you wish to, if you wish to, uh, to have a successful SETI project, then you need to uh, cover a lot of bases and you need to think much outside of the box, which hasn't always been the case because people were uh, falsely uh, impressed by usually by some large numbers uh, they obtained uh, as a number of possible targets and then so they didn't really didn't really think it, it was worthwhile to go into details because if you have like 10,000 civilizations in a galaxy it doesn't really matter what uh, wavelength and what I don't know like uh, spectral interval or whatever will you use because that huge number of targets is obviously some will fall within uh, within parameters of your uh, observational survey or your experiment now this is this kind of carelessness this kind of uh, you know rough and uh, and, and tumble uh, like approach to to uh, to these things is not to be condoned anymore do you think the right epistemological attitude right now uh, is is agnosticism about aliens uh, i think so i i mean it is definitely uh, especially if you if you wish i mean that also that is also a little bit of equivocating on uh, how um, do you conceptualize aliens because uh, usually and that is one thing simpson got right uh, that is that uh, expectation of people of encountering, you know, like a little green man uh, or something like uh, some other pop cultural representations of aliens or like uh, uh, Spielberg's E.T. or some some other uh, being which is which might be morphologically different from us, but uh, still 
rather easy to communicate with. Uh, that is naive. And that I don't think that there is much uh, a way of uh, solidly grounding such so such an idea. Uh, on the other hand, this doesn't really preclude detecting uh, artifacts of, uh, of uh, advanced uh, extraterrestrial civilizations without really properly understanding them. That's, that's an interesting point, which was also raised by Stanislav Lem and by some other thinkers, that essentially uh, you may wish to detect anomalies, things which are impossible to explain in a kind of uh, naive, uh, completely naturalistic kind of, uh, of viewpoint. So uh, now this is something where, where one needs to be uh, quite uh, cautious and uh, quite precise philosophically, because and it is one other uh, part of baggage which we smuggled in uh, our discussions of Fermi's paradox, uh, and that is uh, the idea that um, we could always be certain uh, whether a particular observation or a particular phenomenon is of, uh, uh, under quotes, natural or, under quotes, artificial origin. So that is uh, probably uh, the w- one of the most important philosophical inputs there is how actually it is difficult and probably impossible to really distinguish between uh, between sufficiently complex artifacts and some like uh, unknown and mysterious and yet unexplained natural phenomena. And here we we could be talking about megastructures in space. So, for example, uh, Dyson spheres or shell worlds or exactly is that what? Yeah, Exa- yeah. exactly. That is that is a kind of. A, uh, but uh, please note one thing. Uh, the fact that we are uh, uh, that you have used that uh, very terms like Dyson spheres or shell worlds or, or whatever ring worlds or whatever uh, that means that those are objects which have been conceptualized and in one vague sense understood and certainly conceivable by humans by human minds which are obviously limited at least by our evolutionary origin. Now, Definitely. now I can I, I am completely ready to admit that there are many artifacts possible which are perhaps highly functional, but which cannot be conceived by human minds at, at our present state. So actually, and that is the problem because we have this the same problem which uh, my friend and occasional collaborator and also. Uh, like participant at your podcast, Anders Sandberg, uh, he, he actually mentioned in in his uh, in uh, when you talked uh, to him, he mentioned this problem of uh, unknown unknowns. That is exactly uh, uh, the search for techno signatures, uh, for techno or if you wish, I mean techno signatures is sort of a really literally technical term but say artifacts of uh, of uh, advanced civilizations then okay you can have a sort of a known unknowns and known unknowns in this uh, in this context would be what you have mentioned dyson spheres and you know like 
marine worlds and stuff like this. But unknown unknowns, that would be artifacts which would be completely inconceivable to us. Probably one day or by using, I don't know, cognitive enhancement or some our post-human descendants uh, will be able to conceptualize much more, including such artifacts. But we cannot at present. So we cannot really search for them. But we can. So this is a possible explanation for why we we haven't discovered anything because alien technology could be so advanced uh, so that we would mistake it for natural phenomena. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that is that is also that is you see uh, we have identified rare earth uh, kind of family of hypotheses and then we have here something else. We have ad- another kind of philosophically inspired family of hypotheses uh, which actually uh, denies the antecedent uh, in uh, in the in the fermi's paradox in the reasoning behind fermi's paradox uh, by simply saying okay we cannot be really sure that we haven't detected them already because it might be that some distant and puzzling astronomical sources are in fact artifacts i mean that is that does sound uh, sort of a sensationalist you know science fiction like uh, or like some tabloid thing but that is we should be uh, we, we, we simply should acknowledge that that is the possibility uh, we always have uh, uh, some astronomical phenomena which cannot readily be explained now they they in principle could be explained by advancement of our theoretical astronomy and uh, in a sort of concocting some more complex explanatory hypothesis but this the very fact that we have concocted some very complex explanatory hypothesis uh, does not mean that such hypothesis is um, necessarily to be preferred over the hypothesis that this particular mysterious source is an artifact. So there is this, uh, there is this uh, uh, often encountered problem uh, that people are simply uh, assuming that, uh, you know, by some uh, application or misapplication of uh, Occam's razor, you can just eliminate uh, the idea that uh, that some cosmic mystery is of artificial origin. You cannot really, because you never, uh, the the very assumption that you are certain that uh, some very involved and complex astrophysical chain of processing, uh, chain of processes created such such an effect can is not necessarily simple simpler uh, than the idea that uh, you know normal biological and possibly post biological evolution elsewhere just not on earth elsewhere in the universe uh, created beings capable of uh, creating artifacts which we see as a kind of anomalous astronomical sources we we might speculate about uh, tiny space probes. So, do, do you find it plausible that that we that we could be uh, surrounded in a sense by these space probes without being able to detect them? Uh, listen, that is a, that is a possibility which should be investigated. 
I mean, I, I am all very much open-minded on that because that is a part of the haystack we are searching through. That is a, a part of haystack is just to be sure whether we have not overlooked so far the possibility that there are actually artifacts which are nearby in astronomical terms. That doesn't really mean that they are here in a sense of, like, you know, being present on Earth and stuff like this. But, you know, even solar system is a, is a very large place by human by present-day human standards. So there is a much of a large part of the solar There are, there are uh, some very well-ground uh, uh, papers suggesting that we, for instance, search for some uh, traces of possible asteroid mining by some previous visitors to the solar system. So there, there has been uh, much time in the history of our solar system, 4.5 billion years old, uh, that uh, one could imagine that, uh, that there have been uh, some alien presence in the solar system and then uh, that it could leave possible technologically identifiable traces so that is a part of the same of the same very big haystack we are we are searching through and now we're talking about very advanced technology so we might we might we might mention in more depth this Kardashev scale Oh, to yes. talk about what would be required to achieve this level of technology, to, to achieve megastructures, for example. Oh, yes. Uh, Kardashev scale was invented in 1960 in that period of early optimism and enthusiasm in early 1960s, I think in 1964, uh, actually by uh, Russian then at that time, Soviet astrophysicist uh, Nikolai Kardashev, in order to, again, uh, formulate some pretty simple rule of thumb, which would enable us to just think about possible uh, very rough, very coarse-grained, so to speak, uh, uh, possible kinds of uh, what we would nowadays call technosignatures. Uh, so uh, he imagined uh, three basic types and then subsequently people tried to improve upon his idea and to refine it and to include more types and to include fractional types, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he said, okay, we can have a civilization which manages the energy which is available on its home planet. Uh, and, of course, uh, the next stage is to manage the energy which is available in its home planetary system, which basically reduces to the energy of his uh, of their parent star. In our case, uh, it is the sun. We know that the sun uh, has a huge luminosity, where only very small, very, very small fraction of uh, solar output falls on Earth, and yet that fraction is sufficient to power the biosphere, so to speak, and everything which has happened in the biosphere. And we are nowadays using, mostly using solar energy, I mean, either uh, through direct means, which is not yet that developed, uh, mostly in uh, through the intermediary of fossil fuels, which are basically just captured solar energy, captured by plants and animals which lived long ago in previous geological eras. So actually, uh, we can speculate how to 
kept how an advanced civilization or future human civilization could hope to capture larger and larger fraction of the solar output until it manages to capture almost all solar output uh, when we would have a thing, a thing like a Dyson Sphere or Dyson Swarm or Dyson Shell or whatever construction is uh, surrounding our sun or, by analogy, any other, any other star which harbors intelligent technological civilization, uh, which would serve to basically capture its uh, power output of of, of star. Uh, and of course, a further generalization, that would be type two uh, in Kardashev's classification or Kardashev scale. And of course, if we further generalize uh, and go from one star to two stars and then and stars and hundred and thousand and gradually uh, the end point of this process is a civilization which spreads around the entire galaxy, entire home galaxy of theirs, uh, and uh, basically manages its uh, entire resources. Uh, Kardashev used energy resources as a sort of a simplest uh, and uh, most plausibly detectable form of resources, but you can also talk about material resources of other kinds as well. Uh, so, actually, what we see around us is that uh, we don't have anything uh, approaching Kardashev's Type Three civilization in our galaxy, in the Milky Way. Otherwise, we would have already known that, presumably. Uh, and uh, the thing is that now we need to uh, an explanation where are, if they exist, where are the civilizations of low, lower Kardashev types like uh, uh, of. We are currently uh, at uh, fractional Kardashev type 0.75 or something like that, 0.72 perhaps, uh, and are slowly slowly by human terms of course it's very quick by some astronomical or or even evolutionary biological terms uh, we are very quickly ascending uh, and increasing this uh, uh, kardashev type of ours uh, so we can hope that uh, if we don't of course if we don't blow ourselves up or like in some other way uh, prevent our further technological progress uh, even with those things uh, which you talked with Anders about like uh, uh, colonization of asteroid belt or some creating a sort of a, a family of uh, O'Neill habitats and colonies in the spanning uh, the entire solar system we would gradually assume uh, something like uh, 1.x or something like that, Kardashev uh, type, uh, and gradually, of course, in the course of further time, further away, approaching perhaps type 2 or being capable of, of constructing our own mega structures or astro-engineering structures. Uh, and so that is a sort of a simplified manner, of course. One thing which also Kardashev completely uh, freely admitted is that uh, 
there are some limitations of uh, his view. His view was intentionally oversimplified. So you can have, for instance, and that is the most interesting uh, uh, or interesting possible exception, is that you, we have uh, that we encounter artifacts of nowadays extinct uh, cosmic civilizations, of perhaps perhaps large artifacts or like some abandoned uh, Dyson sphere or something like like that which is uh, like which exists and but it does not correspond to a kind of target we would like to well, communicate with or or which we usually imagine when we are talking about uh, first contact detection of extrasolar or extra so that's a problem of time we have there exactly uh, where there might have been a type 2 civilization in our galaxy but but it is now dead and maybe it has been dead for a billion years exactly and uh, listen and that is not really so strange because let us consider for a moment let us uh, try to you know be mundane for a moment let's consider how do we know about previous human civilizations here on earth Many, most of them are extinct now. You cannot really talk to an ancient Egyptian or and to learn how was it to live in the times of I don't know Ramses the uh, second. What you can do is to study their artifacts. Their artifacts turned out to be uh, to have a, a longer lifespan than the civilization itself. So we have found ancient Egyptian, for instance, or and of course it can pertain to any number of uh, previous societies, cultures, civilizations on, on Earth. Uh, you can find their artifacts and try to reconstruct uh, many features of, uh, uh, of those civilizations on the basis of artifacts. A part of it will be necessarily very speculative. And of course, people in uh, the realms of uh, ancient history and archaeology freely admit that it's not something like, which is, you know, like kept secret or something which is uh, like people are ashamed of. Uh, a part of archaeology uh, always involves speculation. That's completely legitimate. So it is basically, I think, that we should uh, replicate that kind of thinking on a cosmic scale. I mean, that's not something which is uh, completely something like radical, uh, newfangled, something which is, uh, which is unheard of, which is out of Star Trek. No, not really. I mean, there's, there are big uh, uncertainties about uh, many very important aspects of uh, even those previous human societies uh, on which we have uh, most data. For instance, it was for uh, quite a long time, it was highly uh, speculative and highly uncertain uh, whether people who were building workers, who were working on building uh, pyramids of ancient Egypt, whether they were slaves or free citizens who were paid. 
people originally under the influence of uh, ancient Greek writers, people originally assumed that they were all slaves, but it turns out subsequent archaeological discoveries uh, turn out that actually it seems nowadays that they were free workers uh, getting paid for their work uh, on those uh, projects, on those mega projects by human standards, uh, which were deemed uh, very important, uh, state critical, and even holy at that time. So there is not, there is not, I mean, I mean, searching for artifacts is actually, actually always uh, connected with uh, studying other civilizations, no matter, I mean, it doesn't really matter whether we are talking about human or, or some non-human civilizations. Wouldn't it be much more difficult to search for artifacts than to search for for than to try to detect signals from other other stars uh, or other star systems? Uh, yeah, if you were sure that you can uh, overcome the already mentioned problem of synchronization, for instance, if you wish to detect uh, directed signals, then you better be synchronized with whoever is sending your signal, or otherwise you you won't be able to <laughs> to establish communication or to detect signal in the first place. That is one big problem. We cannot really be certain that we are really well synchronized. People are talking about, you know, like building huge interstellar beacons would emit for a long period of time. That's okay, but such beacons, people often think that such beacons, such beacons are essentially the same as uh, like uh, mega artifacts. The huge beacons which would emit, especially if you like expect isotropic emission in, in all directions or emission at a very uh, wide interval of frequencies, uh, that means that would require lots of energy, uh, large uh, emitters and uh, advanced technology to be located in depths of space, uh, uh, far from any noise, blah, blah, blah. So there are many requirements for that, which are essentially tantamount to civilization capable of building uh, things like, you know, space elevators or like ring worlds or maybe Dyson spheres and stuff like this. So actually, uh, there is no sharp distinction between the There isn't, we can possibly uh, be lucky and then and discover something which is similar to ourselves, discover a primitive, a primitive technologically primitive civilization. But that is really, that is on most reasonable models of distribution within the galaxy that is simply improbable. Most probable thing is that um, uh, by, uh, by a large margin uh most probable targets will be much more advanced, much older, much more advanced. And uh, now this might be a good news, might be a bad news in a sense that uh, uh, if they are really much advanced, then it would, as we have already discussed, it would possibly it would uh, be very difficult to distinguish them from some strange natural phenomena if they are very advanced and very very immediately that would mean very strange from our point of view uh, and on the other hand of course uh, of course i think that there are even some that might be interesting to you especially uh, i think that there might be some ethical uh, 
uh, advantages in meeting much older civilizations because much older civilizations uh, are, in my deep conviction, uh, are much likelier to be morally advanced as well. And so to be able to overcome those uh, socio-biological impulses which are part of uh, our evolutionary heritage and which actually cause us problems on Earth. Things like uh, aggression, territorial instinct, uh, things like, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, problems which we have in our relations among ourselves are basically evolutionary rooted. So, in a sense, if you are the farther away you are from uh, our from our uh, ancestors, which were uh, before before cultural before the onset of cultural evolution, uh, the, the better your chances are to be a kind of a morally enlightened being. Do you, do you find it plausible at all that one of these highly advanced, say a, a type three galactic civilization, is it plausible that that such as a civilization did in some point at some point in the past exist and and how wouldn't this civilization ha- just have kind of overtaken everything? Has it is there something? Is it the distance between galaxies that could prevent this, or would it be self destruction? I, I find it difficult to 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 conceptualize that a a civilization could control the energy resources of a of a galaxy without then traveling or expanding further into the universe. Uh, yeah. Listen, I am not a really big uh, fan of this. Uh, you know, ever expanding uh, like uh, ideas or paradigms. I don't think that uh, that uh, I mean, uh, universe is simply so large that uh, uh, I mean, even the idea of uh, interstellar expansion, even among closest stars, is really so difficult, so logistically problematic that uh, you need to achieve not only some very high level of technology you need also and what is probably more difficult and uh, uh, by that very by by that very assumption more rare uh, you will need to achieve a kind of uh, a social stability which is really unprecedented and which cannot be compared with anything uh, in uh, human experience so far so that is Probably, but 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 yeah. Sorry again. Uh, but if if a, a civilization had already reached control of the energy of a galaxy, wouldn't this mean that they had already achieved a high level of stability and a high level of technological advancement? Oh yes, oh, absolutely. That would mean. But let's let's talk about the filter. Uh, okay, and that's probably. Probably that is the reason why we don't perceive any <laughs> any type three civilization either in our galaxy or in nearby ones. By the way, I mean that is something which has been searched for. I mean, and there are and there especially in uh, like in in 2015 there were two important uh, projects. One it was so called G Hat project. The other was a survey of. Uh, Eric Zakrisson and his collaborators, uh, which who actually searched for uh, very advanced 
type 3 or maybe type 2.x, where x is some large <laughs> figure like 7 or 8, uh, civilizations in external galaxies, admittedly in nearby external galaxies, but nearby, when you go beyond the Milky Way, it is huge indeed, still, by any standards, even by standards of astronomers who are, like, observing planets and stars. Uh, so the, we are already in a kind of a cosmological, at a cosmological level. Uh, and so they actually actually looked for, for them, and they haven't found any. And they haven't found even any good candidates for, for that. Now, of course, I mean, this is still a huge haystack we have to, to search uh, in front of us. But uh, it seems that probably, probably, uh, if, uh, if uh, type 3 civilizations on Kardashev scale are possible, they probably are located in the future. Maybe, maybe our descendants can, can build one, uh, but but it is by it. Uh, I would argue that uh, kind of uh, preponderous uh, indications uh, point to 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 direction that uh, maybe creation of uh, such such complex uh, societies is simply impossible, or at least impossible to achieve in times available to. To, to the universe before, you know, like all these astrological things happen and protons decay and, and other, and the universe reaches some kind of heat death in, in the future. But, uh, but type two stellar civilization, you would, you would say that these are uh, possible? Uh, these are probably the best targets in a kind of a practical, practical search. And these are, of course, I don't think why would they be uh, impossible. So uh, by our by the our best knowledge available at present, uh, uh, it is completely in accordance with the known laws of, laws of nature. So uh, there shouldn't uh, be impossible. Uh, except again, maybe it is less probable than one would naively expect because of some obstacles which again lie less in the domain of physics and technology and perhaps more in domains of uh, social organization or social engineering if you wish because even if you wish to 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 look uh, to remain in a single uh, uh, planetary system but uh, for instance construct a dyson sphere that is a project which uh, will certainly last very, very long time, perhaps thousands of years, perhaps tens of thousands or even millions of years, and you need a sort of a unbelievably stable social organization which uh, may be possible to achieve, but then again, it may be less likely than we a priori think it is. Could it be that that other civilizations much more advanced than ours could be much more organized because say they are artificial as opposed to biological mm -hmm. they might be able to all function as one individual because they function as as copies of each other so oh. they they might be able to function more like ants as opposed to humans where where these social <laughs> coordination problems arise exactly and that's a, that's a that's a wonderful topic and that's actually something which 
I'm a little bit surprised in uh, and uh, and even saddened uh, to see that uh, that exactly uh, this cluster of, uh, of of issues which you just mentioned is not uh, more widely uh, more widely researched and more deeply studied. Uh, I am uh, I am uh, very much optimistic in that sense that actually post-biological societies and post-biological civilizations and post-biological entities are uh, not only uh, more likely due to uh, constraints such as uh, optimization, efficiency, and these other things, but also, which is... I understand highly controversial uh, statement, but I will still make it uh, because post-biological entities are likely to be ethically more advanced as well. Exactly because they are more removed from uh, their evolutionary heritage, which involves things like uh, uh, like uh, Aggression, like territoriality, like uh, you know, keen uh, preference and uh, things like that, which actually are sources of uh, much uh, behavior and uh, much, uh, much, many things which we generally assign a negative moral value to. Could it also be an ethical disadvantage to be further re- removed from from the evolutionary past? If we think about the ability to empathize, for example, which is also part of our evolutionary history, uh, could could this give us a, a, an ethical dis- disadvantage or for for the for these types of more advanced civilizations? Well, uh, it is possible, uh, but I would still argue that this uh, previous uh, outweighed the benefits outweighed these uh, uh, losses in a sense that. Uh, uh, after you pass some threshold in, for instance, uh, physical control over matter, uh, then your uh, your uh, weapons uh, become too dist- too destructive, uh, really, and uh, so you actually wish to avoid. Uh, any kind of conflict which can, I mean, any kind of widespread conflict uh, could actually bring a sort of a total total annihilation of uh, of the species or of the um, entire planetary systems system or something like like that. Uh, so actually, you wish to be. Uh, a kind of as little aggressive as possible, even if that means losing some kind of empathy toward the sort of uh, uh, losing. Uh, I mean, this would mean also losing uh, kinds of uh, in-group preference, which actually I would also argue are responsible for most of the troubles we have in the present day world. Uh, yeah, so that's a bad empathy too uh, yes exactly uh, yeah and there is one uh, but there is another there, there is another issue there uh, I guess but that uh, by that time uh, post biological entities will be able to willingly retain some of the features like empathy or things like that I mean I don't think that if you I mean if you understand uh, uh, their biological origin and if you understand uh, all the modes involved in information transmission which are relevant to to such 
high-level complex feature, uh, then you could uh, you could willingly recreate it if you find it uh, useful and uh, you know like needed and bringing some net positive value. So you're thinking about a civilization with with much more fine-grained control over their own constitution. We we could imagine them being able to selectively edit their own genetic code or maybe even uh some 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 other form of 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 code on the substrate that they that they're running on. Exactly. Exactly. And that is that strive for optimization or if you wish strive for perfection. I think that essentially would be much stronger motivator than purely physical expansion. So that is one one thing which is uh, highly controversial in uh, like, uh, you know, circles of both uh, future thinkers and uh, SETI interesting people. Uh, I have all, many times I have had the sort of debates and even occasionally quarrels uh, with, uh, with people who... Uh, who, who argue that, uh, you know, physical expansion uh, will stay a kind of uh, constant or so like some kind of uh, eternal motivation at all time. I don't see it that way. I think that quite, quite contrary, uh, really, uh, we could uh, essentially mark this transition between biological and post-biological regime in exactly... Uh, sort of a motivation shift uh, from, uh, you know, like uh, uh, greater physical expansion and greater physical control over resources uh, from uh, from that cluster of motivations to this uh, other one, which would involve uh, uh, perfecting oneself, which would involve some sort of strive for, you know, like uh, in ancient Greeks, there was this idea of Olympian perfection. Uh, so you actually wish to uh, not really to, you know, like conquer the world and rule everything, but to achieve the highest level of optimization, the highest level of, of harmony, if you wish. So I, I think that uh, it is quite plausible, and there is uh, my uh, occasional collaborator and friend, John Smart, uh, has interesting ideas about that. He wrote several papers about that, that basically uh, it would be natural to expect that after some threshold of physical control, which perhaps could be achieved within uh, a single planetary system, uh, then uh, really advanced civilizations uh, will tend to turn inward and to uh, to to create uh, either to create virtual worlds or to create a sort of a perfect uh, science and perfect art and uh, perfect other uh, spheres of uh, uh, creativity which are not conceivable to us at our present primitive state if we imagine a civilization of utilitarians then this could could become as an inward search for for creating the basically hedonium which is matter optimized for maximizing pleasure exactly but uh, exactly so the, we could imagine a whole planet made of made of this hedonium and um, but but why then wouldn't they why would they lose their motivation to to 
turn other planets. So <laughs> this is of course deeply speculative, but but say that they were they were experiencing pure bliss all uh, all of the time. Why wouldn't they have a have a motive to to expand this bliss? Uh, uh, ex- yeah, expand to uh, to uh, ah, that is that's that's an interesting one because if we join uh, it with what we have talked about like uh, five minutes ago uh, about uh, like. Uh, being more efficient in solving coordination or in one sense behaving as a kind of a single being. Now, you don't wish your single being to be physically too large because that would involve uh, latency and the impossibility of communicating. I mean, if we suppose that the laws of physics are still valid and you cannot communicate faster than the speed of light. So if you already, if you are of, if you're, collective being or if you're to to borrow this old term of vernadsky and and Teilhard de Chardin, if your noosphere is too large then it would actually tend to fall apart into smaller units which could then effectively communicate among themselves you don't wish to have something which is like on the orders of a light years because obviously that would mean that you need years to communicate between parts of yourself and which is not really good i mean it's it's not it wasn't good for 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 dinosaurs which were too huge uh, in in mesozoic so they they actually had problems this uh, in in coordinating parts of their own body so so it it, it simply i think that uh, that uh, the uh, limit of the speed of light actually uh, offers you a kind of uh, sweet spot so to so to speak in a space of uh, all possible future uh, trajectories of advanced civilizations because uh, you wish to be as large as uh, efficiency uh, and uh, your communication between your parts uh, allow in order to have as man- as much resources as possible possibly to convert into hedonium uh, and on the other hand you don't want to be too large because if you are really too large then you uh, would uh, not have uh, your internal communications uh, as efficient as possible and of course, that makes sense and of course the distribution the physical distribution of matter in the universe is also uh, rather con- conducive to this way of thinking because after all I mean, what's the matter? I mean, where matter is, uh, you know, like a bunch of, uh, uh, okay, uh, accepting for the moment uh, cold dark matter or whatever it is, this uh, dark matter, non-baryonic constituent of the universe. Now, the rest, baryonic matter, normal atoms, uh, are basically, you have very thin interstellar medium, uh, and then everything is uh, uh, in stars and around stars separated by huge nothingness so you have you need to go uh, if you are uh, like uh, using your entire uh, planetary system then you need to go uh, like a million times that uh, farther away to encounter first other island so to speak it is just simply like like uh, some sort of archipelago in uh, in the wide in some huge ocean, uh, then it is 
usual uh, from the point of view of uh, imagine how people who first colonized Pacific Islands uh, were feeling. I mean, they could create a sort of community with people on their own island and that could uh, function like more or less harmoniously. But the problem is that the next island is so distant that uh, uh, it simply it simply is not worth going there. I wanted to ask you whether you find it ethically, is it ethically okay to attempt to contact alien civilizations as we I don't know how serious we how seriously we have attempted this, but we we've sent out radio signals for a hundred years. We have sent out the Voyager Golden Record. Um, is this something that could come back and harm us in some sense? Uh, I mean, okay, in principle, it could. I think that uh, it's uh, it's uh, unlikely. Uh, for several reasons, uh, and most important was what we have already mentioned, and that is uh, that uh, I think that we have really very strong position to argue that uh, uh, the older civilizations, which are uh, predominantly uh, more likely that uh, we will encounter, are simply wiser in a moral sense, because they are older, and uh, in contrast to what is uh, what is usually uh, that uh, <laughs> that idea that you know old age means wisdom is uh, usually uh, misinterpreted in human context. Uh, but here, I think that uh, that we actually have very good reasons because uh, actually uh, an older technological civilization automatically means that uh, somehow it managed to uh, keep uh, all existential risks uh, under um, you know limited and uh, and to 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 to, to pass through this uh, filter of uh, possible self destruction uh, or some other kind of uh, self limitation uh, Does this mean that you that you disagree with Bostrom's notion of orthogonality between values and, and rationality or intelligence? Uh, I think that uh, again, I mean uh, that uh, again, all things <laughs> in their own time. Uh, the Bostrom thesis is okay for what he has tried to. To, to show uh, in in his book Superintelligence, uh, I don't think it is kind of a universally applicable thing uh, at all times and uh, in all places. I, I think actually that uh, uh, there there is a, a rather good evolutionary argument that at long time scales uh, on. Uh, uh, vast spatial scales. Uh, we have reasons to to believe that uh, simply uh, wrong. Uh, okay, to speak uh, in a very simplified terms, uh, bad values uh, will destroy themselves, and uh, what remains, if anything remains. But we suppose that uh, that there. Are, if we suppose that there are other uh, older interstellar or cosmic civilizations uh, that they cannot be really guided by very bad 
very bad ideas, so to speak, because they would have already destroyed themselves. You know, that's a sort of a cartoonish and overly simplified map, but I think that there are several steps in that chain of reasoning which could and should be made precise and better elaborated in principle, even if nobody has done that in print so far. I recently spoke with Andreas Gomez Emilson from the Qualia Research Institute, and mm-hmm. he has this notion of um, of pure replicators. So, c- could we imagine a situation, a civilization which is just extremely good at replicating themselves and uh. at surviving without? Um, so a civilization that functions much like a virus does. Uh, But uh, in what terms uh, would that deserve to be called a civilization? I mean, okay, I understand you can have something like, uh, you know, uh, in Lem's, uh, actually Lem's novel, The Invincible, you have some such things. You have uh, basically robots which evolved on an empty planet uh, but they actually devolved. They actually uh, just discarded extra complexity and literally became like insects or like uh, like microorganisms, which uh, you know they do nothing. They possess. They just like exist and reproduce very efficiently. And they, but they have no culture. I mean, they have no values. They have no artifacts after all, except for themselves. So, in a sense, that is not a civilization. That's more like, um, you know, like a natural, not non-intentional phenomenon. It is possible, of course, but but that's. I mean, you should be afraid of that in the same manner as you are afraid of of, of viruses and you know bacteria and, uh, and other pathogens. And you would expect there to be again these physical limits to the spread of of such pure replicators. Uh, I mean. That's uh, rather, in in a sense, I mean, that's, uh, uh, I think that's pretty obvious because on a basis of replication alone, you cannot really hope to, uh, like, uh, create some interstellar whatever, uh, like uh, generation ships or uh, spaceships or, or whatever. Of I mean, it is possible in a sense of uh, spreading uh, microorganisms through kind of panspermia, I mean, which is, that, that sounds similar to me, but uh, in that case, like people imagine then there are some new models of possible panspermia even uh, either within these uh, interstellar comets and asteroids or maybe just like uh, in very small dust grains uh, like powered by light pressure from from earth uh, but that is not something which is i mean that is not something which we will consider to be sentient or like intelligent or 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 whatever uh, so yeah, of course maybe i'm not just imaginative enough yeah, but <laughs> that's always in the cards uh, but uh, i was i was speculating about about a civilization with the uh, let's let's call it the motivations even if that word doesn't really apply let's say the motivations of a virus combined with the intelligence of of humanity for example it, uh, would that would that constitute a threat that 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 is a is a counter example maybe to your notion of of turning inwards as you as you become more intelligent uh possibly so although i'm not quite sure how how such a, um, how such a thing could evolve in the first place because i mean uh, that level uh, you need some level of control over 
your physical environment, which is not strictly local. And this is not something like uh, you encounter in, uh, in, uh, like in obviously non-intelligent nature, where you don't have some kind of planning. You don't have, uh, uh, you don't go uh, outside of some uh, very closely and very literally adhered trajectory in looking for resources and stuff like this. You cannot, I mean, after all, uh, you don't have uh, examples of uh, long-term planning. Evolution is, uh, in a sense, antithetical to, 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 to uh, the very concept of planning. And I don't see that you can really, uh, you know, go far away in uh, the cosmic uh, terms without planning. That you can really go and manage uh, resources of, uh, you know, other, uh, I mean, even other asteroids or comets or or planets, not to mention other stars and other extrasolar planetary systems without having a kind of very complex planning, which uh, I don't think, uh, I mean, this this was, planning is an activity which actually distracts you from from uh, uh, reproducing and from uh, like being perfectly adapted to your environment. That's the reason, among other things, why uh, people people are often saying, "Oh, you have all these extremophile organisms deep within uh, Earth's crust, and uh, I don't know at the, the bottom of the oceans and stuff like this." Why, uh, uh, why you always we don't know what what are. I mean, we have only very few isolated samples taken from, say, like 10 kilometers uh, below the surface of the Earth. So uh, why don't you think that uh, there are some, not only microorganisms, maybe some more complex organisms, but that is exactly the point. If you have a very, a very intense selection pressure, then you are, then you have to specialize. And then you simply cannot evolve much from that uh, uh, most fit from that particular peak of the fitness landscape you cannot go uh, away because you are immediately dead if you are like change any of your parameters uh, outside of a very narrow optimized interval so actually yeah actually all those uh, extreme ecosystems are uh, very, uh, how to say, species poor, and they are very uh, character poor. Uh, and so you cannot really, and that was, that was actually uh, a subject of a debate between Popper and uh, Michael Roos and some other philosophers of biology back in 1970s, because Popper actually in, uh, in, in one of his uh, books actually invoked a hypothetical uh, biosphere on Mars, uh, he said, okay, suppose that uh, humans send uh, uh, these probes uh, on Mars, and they, then they discover that Mars is inhabited, uh, but in contrast to Earth, it is inhabited by only three species of microorganisms, and not, uh, not by millions of species uh, which we have on Earth. So why would you expect that the same evolutionary theory is able to account for the richness of Earth's biosphere and for poorness of a hypothetical Martian biosphere. 
And those other guys, of course, replied, "Oh, but that is that the problem is that uh, uh, if you have some such specialized, uh, such, such different uh, boundary conditions, so to speak, and you have such strong selection pressure as uh, inhospitable environment on Mars is, then you obviously will have to specialize, and by specializing, you effectively." Uh, limit your own possibilities for uh, further evolution, for further diversification, and for evolving complex traits. So I think that essentially that's something which is uh, which uh, might, of course, that is if we kind of accept this adaptationist perspective on evolution. Of course, there might be some freak accidents and some uh, some uh, um, non-selection effects which could act to create such kind of uh, organism, such kind of species which would be both uh, well adapted to some uh, harsh environment and capable of uh, of uh, some like uh, evolving toward cognition, uh, but. I don't know. I I feel it unlikely somehow. <laughs> yeah, again, it makes sense. So you've given us reasons to be cautiously optimistic about about us being harmed by extraterrestrial civilizations. Is, is that is that a, a, a yep. fair? Summary? Yep. I think that uh, essentially, exactly. That's that's. Uh, uh, completely adequate uh, description. I think uh, uh, we should, of course, be cautious. That is something which, which, which one should do. One should be independently of the exact domain of uh, study or domain of action. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that we should be optimistic uh, for the very same reason we are. We tend to be optimistic about uh, our own future, either in a sense of uh, our individual uh, future or and our, say, children and grandchildren and uh, our future as a species. Because uh, this is simply mirroring uh, uh, one another. I mean, if we have reasons to believe that future humans will be wiser and, say, like, more enlightened and more morally advanced and more peaceful, for instance, uh, then the, those same reasons will apply everywhere on the average. Of course, again, there might be statistical freaks and outliers, obviously, uh, but on the average, uh, the very same reasons should be applied everywhere. We, we should expect uh, older uh extraterrestrial intelligent beings if they are really older they have accumulated more experience they accumulated more even more trials and errors and perhaps perhaps even more learning uh, without trials trial and error and uh, and actually i i do think in a sense uh, that uh, uh, we are uh, we have possibility and perhaps even prospect of uh, moral improvement and I and I do think that the debate on uh, on moral bioenhancement which is uh, led in bioethics circles this last couple of years and perhaps decades 
uh, is actually a very serious and very realistic debate, which uh, actually has a kind of uh, tangible consequences. And I do think that uh, human moral bioenhancement is a realistic prospect, maybe not immediate, but, you know, again, on timescales of decades in the future, uh, very possible. And so if that is so, and if we can... Uh, act to improve upon ourselves, I don't see why uh, other intelligent beings won't do the same. Yeah, I was planning to ask you about uh, the following uh, as an attempt to try to help uh, other less advanced civilizations. So I was thinking that maybe we could make some sort of information package containing scientific knowledge that, that could be Uh, decoded by by other civilizations and then spread these information packets out into the universe but but you've uh, multiple times you've mentioned that if there are other civilizations they are they are likely to be more advanced than we are so could could you explain wh- why are they likely to be more advanced uh, okay that two kinds of answers. Uh, one is a kind of a technical answer which uh, depends on uh, on that uh, astrophysical fact uh, basically that uh, uh, that most uh, most planets and most planetary systems are older so we can also uh, if everything else is the same we can assume uh, in accordance again with The Copernican principle, we can assume that uh, if uh, most of them are older, then on the average, uh, the age of biospheres and the age of intelligent beings uh, is uh, larger there. Uh, So that is, and how to prove it, that we can prove that by analyzing, for instance, chemical evolution of the galaxy and uh, how the probability of formation of Earth-like planets scales with, uh, say, abundances of particular chemical elements. Uh, so actually, that is that is a field uh, where we have achieved much progress in the last couple of decades. Uh, on the other hand, there is a simpler uh, answer as well, and that is because in astronomical and in uh, evolutionary terms, we have just arrived So, in a sense, I mean, it is very hard to imagine younger guys because we are just here. I mean, so the fact that we have somewhere like, I don't know, like a couple of thousand years of history of civilizations or like, I don't know, like 10,000 years from the very first uh, civilizations. uh, I mean, this is very little in terms of either biology or astrophysics. So actually, uh, actually, it is, uh, and it is much smaller than a prospective duration of our future. If we are, of course, not pessimists about existential risks, I mean, if we suppose that we can survive uh, next, uh, I don't know, hundred years uh, without destroying ourselves, uh, then uh, uh, there is no reason, as Anders explained in detail that uh, to suppose that uh, we cannot last for, I don't know, like a billion years or a couple of billion years in the future, or maybe maybe much more into this degenerate era or and other eras of uh, future cosmological evolution. So if that is the case, uh, then by simple statistics uh, and then uh, uh, 
again, uh, whatever we perceive will most likely be older, and the assumption is we'll have survived this bottleneck in which we find ourselves now. This this bottle you describe it as a bottleneck. This is a notion, kind of. Uh, sometimes it's called the hinge of history hypothesis. <laughs> yes, yes. Why why would uh, all of the risk be concentrated in this century? Isn't that isn't that a little too? Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, it's not all, of course. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm. But uh, most of it uh, for a very simple reason. I mean, because the. The world has simply uh, has has become smaller in a sense that uh, local events have much uh, much. I mean, uh, are bound to have a sort of global impact, which we are, for instance, perceiving right now in the current pandemic. Uh, uh, but uh, in in general, we can expect that uh, uh, that uh, some local risk is uh, likely to become a global one as far as humans are limited to the surface of the earth i mean if the future if in the future we colonize i don't know mars and moon and perhaps build some uh, free floating uh, onil habitats or um, or i don't know like go to Galilean satellites of Jupiter or asteroid belt or Kuiper belt or something like that, uh, then uh, even the global events which uh, which occur on Earth will not have uh, the same effect of uh, just wiping out uh, the entire set of uh, of human values. So uh, basically, this is the uh, the the reason is that uh, in previous uh, in previous epochs uh, the world uh, the Earth was too big, and nowadays the Earth has become too small. But we are still living in this small world. When we transition to living in a large solar system, then uh, obviously the density—I mean, at least obviously to me—the density of uh, perhaps, perhaps I'm not like uh, thinking entirely precisely, but, uh, uh, at least on an intuitive level, the risk will be much wider distributed and distribution of risk after all is one of the main methods of risk management. <laughs> so, so you don't expect that, I mean, there are cosmic cataclysms which can affect the entire solar system like i don't know explosion of a closed supernova or a gamma ray burst but they are extremely uh, of extremely low probability and uh, the, the, so the reason why the current century is unique is that we are so close together while being uh, too in a sense too technologically powerful uh, for living so, so close together. Exactly. I think that 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 is that is actually a very good formulation. Okay. Um, I also want to run by or run something by you about suffering risks. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. and these <laughs> these are these are one one construal is to say that the worry is that we will we will spread into the universe, and with us we will bring organisms that will suffer immensely. And and one thing that's often mentioned here is that uh, as we have expanded on Earth, we've come to dominate Earth completely. We have also created factory farming. 
So we have we have expanded suffering along with our expansion on Earth, and we will do the same in the future in space. And I, I from what you've you've said, you've been saying throughout this conversation, I, I expect you to disagree with with this as a as a risk in a sense uh listen i mean i don't disagree that it is a risk i don't uh, i don't want to diminish the problem of suffering which is which is a big philosophical and practical problem as well uh but i am not quite sure that uh the premises of that argument uh, are completely sound because on one hand uh, okay, let us first suppose. Let us suppose that uh, humans never in, evolved in the first place. So, okay, whether the amount of suffering on Earth uh, would be substantially smaller, probably so. Whether it would be smaller as normalized per, say, per living being, I am not sure. That's something which is uh, th- th- that's similar to this uh, to this acrimonious polemic between Steven Pinker and uh, Nassim Taleb about uh, whether you should calculate uh, victims of wars uh, uh, as normal or in relative or absolute terms. I mean, this is uh, this is something which is. I mean, th- there is no simple and, and obvious answer to that. I mean, I don't know, but I think that essentially there is something to be said in uh, for normalizing these things and for arguing that, uh, you know, okay, I mean, it is, uh, there is much suffering among, say, animals which are kept uh, by humans as livestock, but on the other hand, uh, their lives uh, won't exist without humans. I mean, there wouldn't simply, I mean, even entire species wouldn't exist in the first place. Now, if we assign some positive value on existence of different species, that would mean that uh, without humans, there would be, uh, I mean, uh, uh, humans did create value even in uh, like keeping livestock. Because because it has it has value to create new species in itself. Uh, that is one perspective. I mean, and uh, together with species, of course, you create many many individuals. You create many more individuals than even in species which are completely which are which exist independently of humans. You create many more individuals uh, than uh, would otherwise exist. But we're talking about individuals with with a net negative uh, well-being, right? Uh, uh, I don't know whether we are, okay. are, are. Are we certain? Are we certain that the that net well-being is negative? We we definitely aren't. This is something I discussed with the Swedish philosopher Torben Chenser. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I listened to that. Yeah, exactly. That's that, yeah. That's interesting talk. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 we are. Uh, it's very difficult to know um but I, i'm the the factory farming was an example that that kind of hinges on an assumption that uh, the lives of factory farmed animals are negative and so that we will we will spread into the universe and create uh the equivalents of factory farms with with lots of individuals with net negative lives that is possible but i don't know i mean i would uh i would like to see sort of a more 
consensus about uh, about uh, the net uh, negative or 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 positive uh, among uh, among moral philosophers. I think that it's we are still rather. I mean, there is uh, it's still somewhat an open question. And of course, I mean, there is some sort of there is also another another issue there, uh, which is that. Uh, Suffering risks uh, are not really predicated on existence of humans. I mean, pure biology, pure evolution creates suffering risks. And that happens quite independently of human intervention. One could argue that at some, in some parts of the biosphere, uh, humans, uh, e- uh, even uh, un, uh, without any intention, even non-intentionally created more good than, uh, than bad. I mean, even in things like we we don't really assign much uh, value, but say consider consider those animals we uh, usually label as vermin. Consider, for instance, rats. Population of rats nowadays is like uh, perhaps I don't know, like five orders of magnitude, or maybe six orders of magnitude larger than it would have been without humans on Earth. And you know most threats, not all most threats um, live their lives uh, essentially uh, without uh, humans creating any particular uh, suffering for them. I would argue exactly to the contrary that actually humans created opportunities for rat lives i mean in in some in some uh, uh, generalized sense. So in future, when humans will be able to even uh, restore uh, those species which uh, uh, have uh, been extinct for some time, even uh, those which are extinct uh, without human intervention and those which have gone extinct, uh, unfortunately, by human uh, unsound ecological practices, uh, I guess that uh, potential for doing good in, in, in the biosphere and among uh, non-sentient uh, living beings would increase in the future. So I don't think that uh, essential, and I, I think that from the sort of a wider point of view of uh, environmental ethics, uh, people who are caring about who who assign uh, positive value to things like biodiversity like uh, prospects and prosperity of uh, plants and animals uh, they should actually welcome uh, human colonization of space because actually that would not only uh, not only reduce the pressure of uh, human industries and uh, other human practices on earth's biosphere but would also create completely non-existent opportunities for plants and animals to spread through the universe together with humans after all we are quite certain that there are no cows for instance on mars but if ever there will be cows on Mars, there there will be cows on Mars exclusively because humans actually transported them in the same manner as they did with uh, distant islands and continents on Earth. But what if you're a a utilitarian like me and you you only care about the well-being? So if you you don't assign any value to the to the biodiversity or to the restoration and expansion of of different uh, species, 
would it would it then be good to have let's let's say these cows on mars or in general just spreading <sighs> nature or spreading wildlife in terms of well-being uh, listen i mean that would that will still have a kind of, that will still have instrumental value i mean even if you don't care about uh, i mean if even if you reject the concept of uh, intrinsic value of these things there will still be some some uh, instrumental value of, of of doing just that. I mean, I don't think that's in uh, such kind of uh, collision necessarily, at least. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that we should we should try to become a little more closer to a little think a little more near term. Okay. Uh, so, so so we have been we have been uh, speculating about the, the the far future and what might be possible. But I want to talk about the the cutting edge of astrobiology today. Okay. And, and here I'm, th- I'm thinking about um, missions to Mars and mm-hmm. missions to uh, Jupiter's moon Europa. Mm-hmm. Uh, what am I? Is it is it correctly perceived that uh, what they're they're attempting to find here are traces? Uh, or uh, signals in the atmosphere that there might once have been microbial life. Okay. Now, okay, in case of Mars, uh, it is still quite open question whether some microbial biosphere uh, exists there now. I mean, I am not at all uh, persuaded that uh, that we can be certain or even that we have high, can that we have high confidence that there isn't uh, some sort of uh, uh, enclaves uh, of uh, microbial biosphere, perhaps in these deep caves which have been discovered, for instance, near Pavonis Mons, this huge volcano uh, on Mars. Uh, there have been several hundreds of caves which, which have been imaged from orbit. Uh, some of them could be very deep. Some of them could be deep enough to have uh, high pressure to enable water existing uh, in uh, liquid condition. Uh, so actually, this is a very interesting issue. First of all, whether there is some some local microbial biosphere there still. On the other hand, maybe it existed in the past and uh, has gone extinct in the meantime, uh, because in the past we are quite certain that conditions on Mars were much more hospitable to life and much more clement uh, than uh, than they are now. That's quite certain. I mean, there is no doubt about that whatsoever. Uh, there were large seas, or if you wish to call them like shallow seas or lakes on Mars. There were rivers on Mars. Uh, the atmosphere was much thicker. And uh, there are some people, some astrobiologists, who argued that uh, in uh, those early days, <laughs> like in the first like billion years or so after the formation of the solar system, uh, Mars actually was a better place to expect uh, abiogenesis or to expect the the, the origin of uh, early primitive life than our earth so uh, so it is possible of course it is also possible that uh, some microbiota was transferred by interplanetary panspermia later in either direction i mean Okay, obviously, it could be transferred from 
from Earth to Mars, but possibly, maybe, maybe someone's transferred uh, from in the opposite. Maybe we are all Martians in that sense. That was suggested by Paul Davis and some other contemporary astrobiologists, uh, half seriously, half tongue-in-cheek, maybe, if uh, uh, abiogenesis occurred first on Mars. And uh, there were... Uh, the, there are Martian meteorites identified as such on Earth. Probably there are, almost certainly, there are uh, Earth meteorites, pieces of Earth on Mars. Our probes haven't found any so far, but that is just because they have searched only very, very small, very small part of the surface of Mars. Uh, probably there are uh, dozens of uh, Earth meteorites on Mars. So it is possible that uh, the transfer of uh, microbiota between neighboring planets is uh, not something which is, 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 is no science fiction. I mean, it's something which is completely plausible. Uh, so it is interesting question, first of all, whether there is some very small, very simple, of course, obviously, Martian biosphere existing right now, if not, whether it existed in the past. So these, these things are something to be, uh, to be uh, worked on. Uh, there are several ways of doing that. Uh, of course, uh, it would be it would be optimal to go and visit all these deep caves and all these possible enclaves, but of course it's very expensive and it's not something which is an immediate prospect. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, we can search either for those uh, anomal chemical anomalies which you mentioned, or for some other traces uh, of uh, uh, of. Uh, um, uh, biochemistry or organic chemistry, which uh, would require uh, some kind of metabolism. Uh, and people have actually devised several of, uh, I mean, people had these tests in 1970s in the time of the Viking mission, but nowadays you can do similar things uh, immensely uh, more, immensely cheaper and, uh, and with uh, much higher precision than it was it was possible to do that. So actually, we should go to Mars in order to, to, to investigate these things. As far as, as Jupiter satellite, uh, especially Europa go, that is a very interesting story because on Europa, there is an ocean which is so huge, which is, it dwarfs all oceans and all water on Earth. Uh, so if we believe, as we do, that first life uh, arose in the oceans and around these uh, uh, deep hydrothermal vents. Uh, there are such vents on Europa. It is essentially what keeps the water liquid uh, uh, beneath the ice, beneath the, the, the icy crust. Uh, the problem is how to get to the water because the ice is probably thick, even if it is not... How thick are we talking? Uh, we are okay. There, uh, there are two schools of thought. There, uh, the one is the optimist school, which says that it is like uh, tens to at most hundreds of meters uh, thick, which is optimistic. Uh, there is a pessimistic school of thought, which says that it is like more likely to be like three to five kilometers. Uh, so that would be very tough to 
to to pour through. On the other hand, if it is uh, like um, well similar to like tens of uh, to tens of meters, that would be possible to do. Especially there are some uh, highly innovative and uh, and uh, well proposed ideas about uh, uh, putting some uh, like. Uh, thermal uh, these uh, nuclear thermal uh, generators which are used for instance on deep space missions like pioneers or voyagers or this uh, new horizon uh, mission uh, you can basically use something which produces heat like these uh, long live long living radionuclides and then uh, leave them to gradually uh, melt the ice and then and uh, they just like pull the probe uh, with some optic fiber or something like that uh, through the ice gradually of course very slowly but but uh, you can expect to uh, such such a contraption to bore through the ice if it is like on the order of tensor or or at most hundreds of meter thick if we are talking about kilometers then uh, then it will probably wait <laughs> how how soon can we get data from from uh, the moon europa I know there's this uh, Europa Clipper mission, uh, but that but they ha- they aren't here. We aren't talking about boring through the ice. Uh, am I right? Yes, uh, yes. And the thing is that uh, okay, that depends on uh, the general state of cosmic industry. I would say, which uh, uh, until say like three years ago, I was more cautiously pessimistic about that because because actually there were all signs that the pace of development until about like 2015 or 2017, there were all indications that actually actually the pace of cosmic industry has slowed down and that there will be less and less incentives for people to develop the relevant Technology. Uh, I am very happy to see that actually things have improved uh, recently, and that actually what has happened are, recently? Uh, recently happened that there are more and more private uh, companies which are interested in developing space technology, uh, from uh, well-known ones like SpaceX and Blue Origin to uh, much smaller but very innovative ones like uh, New Zealand. Uh, a company a rocket lab which actually managed to launch satellites using rocket engines made entirely by 3d printing which is a really sort of a revolutionary thing these are small engines of course and they managed to launch small satellites so far but this is so fascinating to think that they actually were able to uh, make a rocket engine from scratch in less than 72 hours so uh, actually this is kind of uh, kind of breakthrough uh, which uh, one day I mean we are still so close to it uh, we don't see uh, potential applications uh, and uh, we cannot really conceive how many potential applications of that will be in uh, in the near future so actually I'm, I think that there are uh, uh, signs of uh, invigoration of uh, space industry in general uh, and uh, you, you know I mean as a consequence of uh, this resurgence of uh, private sector industries in uh, related to space I mean even those uh, 
huge uh, governmental agencies around the world uh, has uh, woken up a bit and, uh, you know, like tried new things. And NASA promised this Artemis project to return to the moon, especially in particular to the Shackleton crater at the south pole of the moon where there are those uh, water ice deposits which could in principle be the very key to establishing some lunar base in the near future. So actually uh, there are some positive signs. I hope it will continue to expand. So in that sense, uh, maybe even uh, bolder and uh, more massive in both literal and in metaphoric sense missions to the outer solar system, including uh, Europa and including for perhaps Saturn's uh, satellite Titan, which is also a very interesting object from the astrobiological point of view. Uh, probably we'll have them uh, sooner than expected, so to speak. I won't put any specific uh, dates in mind, but uh, I would say that uh, uh, like a couple of years ago, I won't put much talk about anything coming directly from uh, Europa, especially from uh, from uh, beneath the ice before like uh, before 2040 but nowadays i'm a slightly more optimistic it's possible then that maybe in 2030s we'll actually have sort of a sort of a specific data on uh, the state of this uh, subglacial ocean uh, and by the way subglacial oceans uh, the one on europa is the largest one but uh, it's not unique I mean, there is some, something similar exists on Ganymede, although it's much deeper in, uh, in, in that case. And there are also a couple of smaller ones uh, like um, Saturn's uh, moon Enceladus and possibly Apetus as well. Uh, and possibly even that's most bizarre thing uh, on, on Titan, you have surface oceans of liquid methane, but there are also models of the Titan's interior, uh, which suggest that you might have liquid water, but uh, maybe like a dozen uh, of kilometers or so inside the, the interior of Titan. Uh, which makes it uh, the Titan unbelievably appealing target for uh, for for future research because it, it is uh, it is a fascinating place. I mean, you know, like you have uh, almost permanent methane rain on on Titan. Uh, but the Why is that interesting, or, or what? What does that mean that there's permanent methane rain? Uh, it's it, it's simply at least uh, at moderate uh, at moderate uh, latitudes, it uh, simply falls all the time. I mean, it fall, it falls all the time. You have rain, which is not uh, water rain like on Earth, but rain of liquid methane. Otherwise, uh, visually and otherwise similar to to, to water rain, to usual rain, which we are accustomed to. Uh, but uh, very bizarre thing about methane rain is that it evaporates about seven about like uh, 70 centimeters above the ground so if you are like if you are crouching on titan uh, you simply won't get wet 
because it simply evaporates uh, above about 70, about two feet or 70 centimeters above the ground because it's simply, it's simply uh, very easy to evaporate because the temperature on Titan is, is uh, uh, stable uh, in the vicinity of the triple point, so-called triple point of methane in the same manner as the temperature on Earth is stable in the vicinity of the triple point of water. But on Titan, uh, stability is much higher because there is, in general, it's, it's much colder and there is, in general, much less heat in the system and there is much less atmospheric fluctuations uh, on, uh, on, uh, on Titan. So it is actually a very interesting uh, kind of... Uh, a kind of uh, uh, a laboratory for complex chemistry and some people say biochemistry because if there is anywhere in the solar system where uh, nature would provide uh, one with a kind of uh, separate experiment of creating life which is not based on the same biochemistry as the one on Earth and possible on Mars because if there there is life on Mars it's uh, almost certain that it shares the basic biochemistry with life on Earth. So if you want to go and look at something possibly radically different, something which is based on, say, uh, liquid methane as, a sol as solvent rather than water, uh, based on some other complex compounds and their like chain reactions rather than those present in uh, Earth biochemistry, uh, then you should go to Titan. What about uh, telescopes and observatories? What what are the recent uh, developments in in detecting signals from 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 space? Uh, listen, uh, okay. So now, I mean, uh, there are uh, interesting uh, new observatories which are and interesting telescopes which are in. Uh, in the process of construction, development, or at least at the drawing board. Uh, there are also, of course, some bad news, like uh, you have certainly heard about this Arecibo uh, yeah. <laughs> accident, yeah. so to speak. Uh, so... Uh, actually, this was is, that due to uh, was this due to just lack of funding and just deterioration? Uh, yes, because actually, I mean, okay, uh, we, we might explain what to, to uh, the listeners listen, who haven't heard uh, about this. Okay, uh, okay, this Arecibo is this iconic uh, radio telescope locating on Puerto Rico on the island of Puerto Rico in the United States, uh, which and it was uh, it was in the in the it was a part of the movie Contact. Oh by, yeah, oh uh, yes, Carl Sagan, yeah. Yeah, oh, so yes, it, it has yes, kind yes. of a, yes. a cultural significance. Yeah. Yes, it's the famous one which fills the entire. I mean, this is it's it's located in a in a very nice valley between those hills, and uh, and it is uh, it is very. I mean, you, you cannot uh, you cannot uh, uh, confuse it with any other instrument. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, this huge antenna, which is which uh, was suspended. Uh, uh, on cables, uh, it uh, actually recently fell down, and uh, uh, in a sense, uh, this just physically ended up uh, uh, operational lifetime of uh, a receiver telescope, which was actually kind of um, abandoned earlier before that uh, that accident, because actually uh, people usually think that. Uh, 
such objects you can go to like Florence nowadays and see Galileo's telescope in the museum so that is very nice uh, but uh, in contrast to Galileo's uh, instrument all other uh, huge all these huge telescopes and huge instruments of today have some sort of expiration date they have some sort of a natural lifetime in which they are used and uh, essentially Arecibo has already been very well past this, its expiration date. Now there is much talk about restoring it but uh, one should really think of it as a sort of building a new one because whatever even if uh, if it is restored, that will be essentially a new instrument because so much has changed in the field of instrumentation in the, the period since it was originally built. Uh, so it would necessarily be uh, be uh, be a new instrument. Of course, I mean if it is restored as a scientific if it's uh, a scientific observatory, if it is restored just as a part of a museum of history of science. That's completely another story. But if you wish to really observe something with it, then uh, then it would be certainly a new instrument. Uh, so actually, uh, things are changing pretty fast. Um, there is uh, much talk about uh, probably one of the most expected instruments uh, ever. This is uh, this uh, John Webb Space Telescope or a new space telescope or it was originally called uh, NGST, New Generation Space Telescope, which should be a large instrument uh, uh, effectively uh, inheritor of uh, Hubble Space Telescope, but much larger and with much better detectors and with, uh, with much better position not in Earth's orbit, but in so-called Lagrangian point between Earth and Sun, so it would have uh, uh, much less interference from Earth, from uh, upper parts of the Earth's atmosphere, etc. Et so, uh, actually, uh, this is going to be launched soon. It was already postponed, I don't know, like 18 times or so, so actually we expect it uh, very soon. There is this uh, uh, LSST or Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, uh, which is also a new optical instrument based on rather revolutionary new technology, which actually should enable, at least in principle, to make a real kind of uh, deep space real-time observations. That is something which was all which which, which has been considered uh, a kind of uh, oxymoron or self-contradiction in classical in, in normal astronomy because if you wish to observe objects in deep space then you need to accumulate uh, photons from some long exposure during some longer exposure times and that means that you cannot really observe things uh, which are uh, changing quickly or, and you cannot certainly observe things in real time now uh, due to some rather impressive innovations, uh, LS, uh, this LSST uh, should be able to uh, observe things like, uh, for instance, rotation of asteroids uh, in not only in the main asteroid belt between 
Mars and Jupiter, but also in a Kuiper belt uh, in real time and to obtain a lot of uh, information and data about very transient events like uh, short bursts and like uh, quick uh, explosions on flares and uh, uh, which some of them last very quickly, for instance, on stars like our nearest star, Proxima Centauri, which is a red dwarf with a very strong flaring. It, uh, Proxima has uh, these uh, explosions and flares which sometimes last only minutes or even seconds and which are very strong in comparison to, to its overall output. They are not very strong in comparison to the sun because Proxima is much fainter. It's like, uh, I don't know, I mean, a thousand times fainter than, than our sun. Intrinsically, uh, it is a red dwarf, the smallest stars in the universe. Uh, but on the other hand, it's very interesting because it seems that it possesses planets uh, and uh, those flares are extremely interesting uh, because they are, uh, it's also, it's flaring not only in visible light, but even more in uh, things like ultraviolet and X-rays. Uh, and it is very interesting to consider that uh, hypothetical Hypothetical life evolving uh, on a planet around a red dwarf star similar to Proxima, which again it's, is our closest stellar neighbor. Uh, those uh, those life forms uh, uh, would have kind of uh, evolutionary predisposition uh, to observe things in uh, say longer wavelengths in like infrared or microwave to have a kind of infrared and not only infrared but also microwave vision rather than uh, than optical optical vision because most of uh, light from these faint stars is emitted in this at these longer wavelengths and also shorter wavelengths like uh, ultraviolet and uh, especially x-ray can be very disruptive and very dangerous uh, at, uh, on in the vicinity of, of of such stars so that is uh, um, the, we expect uh, some other uh, uh, astronomical instruments to come online in the uh, next, say, five to ten years. Uh, but uh, uh, each, of, uh, each of them, and even more, something which is not as visible and as uh, spectacular to media and to, to, to observers, which is improvement in uh, detectors, in uh, these uh, basically some chips and... Uh, CCD devices which are used to actually uh, transform the, those photons received into electric signals. And of course, uh, immense improvement in uh, data processing uh, in various ways. Uh, well, here you're talking about this, the software side. Uh, what, do you use AI to, to understand the, the data coming in? Uh, many, many uh, methods which have been traditionally, uh, traditionally classified uh, as AI, like machine learning uh, and like neural network classification and some other methods are now routinely used in data analysis of very big uh, data sets which are uh, coming from uh, from large contemporary telescopes. So actually, yes, I mean, it is not really fully-fledged AI in the sense uh, of uh, 
something which would choose on its own how to analyze the data. But it is uh, kind of uh, advanced expert systems uh, which uh, can immensely help you just like orienting that uh, jungle of data in that massive pile of uh, data and just separate what is uh, what is important from what is not really that important. So it is very impressive that, uh, especially in astronomy, which on one hand is perhaps the oldest science, so has some sort of a longest tradition of, uh, of uh, doing, of gathering data and doing uh, at least some rudimentary data analysis, uh, but uh, on the other, also because uh, you have simply so many sources on in uh, wherever you look, you have so many features and you need really to be able to separate your real targets from all these background stars or background galaxies or background noise coming from from some interstellar medium or whatever. Uh, so uh, there is a sort of a great incentive to use those advanced methods, especially those like machine learning neural networks or like uh, some, there are there are other methods. Perhaps I mean uh, there is something which which I have been uh, doing a lot with several uh, collaborators of mine, which is using essentially uh, probabilistic cellular automata in order to to make some models of, for instance, interstellar panspermia or or even intentional colonization between between planetary systems. So we have been trying to do this because uh, uh, cellular automata have some advantages over the conventional methods of modeling, uh, which is usually which has usually proceed via solving some differential equations or even some discrete difference equations uh, but uh, still there are many many ways in which uh, when in which uh, using uh, such a kind of uh, radical method as cellular automata can help you get a better insight or at least uh, uh, get much uh, uh, wider i mean being being able to uh, investigate much larger, larger chunk of your parameter space. This is not empirical. This is this is on the theoretical side. Oh yes. Right? Oh yes. 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 Yeah. Yes. That's, yeah. That's, that's yeah. Sorry. 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 No. 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 That's that's <laughs> perfect. Well, <laughs> this has been uh, very interesting for me, and thank you for doing it. Uh, thank you for for coming on. Your your wealth of knowledge about these topics. Yeah, Gus, you're very welcome. I mean, that's uh, that's uh, it, it, it's real pleasure. I mean, after all, I mean, we need uh, much more uh, those. Uh, how to say interdisciplinary conversations and much more attempts to achieve a kind of synthetic uh, bird's eye view of uh, these big questions. I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs>